Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 244 with my guest, Matt Bellis. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. A place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a doctor. It's not a therapist's office. Oh, I think I got that backwards. I'm not a therapist. This isn't a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Mentalpod is also the Twitter handle you can follow me at. Um, Go check out our website. You can join the forum. You can fill out a survey, which uh, we might wind up uh, reading on the show. We read a lot of surveys on the show. Um, You can support the show financially through our website. You can use our Amazon search portal, and um, that helps support the show. Uh, All kinds of stuff. You can read blogs and guest blogs. Um... LA PodFest went awesome. It was a lot of fun. Uh, they've already posted some of the videos uh, that that are up of the shows. All the shows were, were videotaped, including the one I did with um, with my guest Jackie Cation. And um, you can you can watch those for uh, the next three weeks, maybe even four weeks. Uh, they're going to be at the LAPodFest.com website, and uh, it's $25, and if you use the offer code MENTAL, you'll get $5 off, and they'll give us some of that money, so that helps uh, support our show. And I'm getting super excited. I leave tomorrow to go to Brooklyn uh, for the show this weekend, which I've been yakking about for the last month, um, Sunday night, September 27th at uh, 7 o'clock at the Bell House in Brooklyn. And tickets are still available for that. Go to thebellhouseny.com. And bell is spelled B-E-L-L. No fancy E at the end of it, my southern friends. Um, And my guest is Lane Moore, who uh, I think is just going to be great. She's super funny and crazy. 
like we all are. Um, what do I want to say? Oh, I might also be doing a show. I'll, I'll tweet about it if it looks like I'm going to do it when I'm in New York. I might be doing a Christian Finnegan, who is a great guy and a former guest of the show, um, does a show on Monday nights, I think, um, that uh, I might uh, go do my uh, Richard Martin character at. I'll keep you posted. Are you still awake? <laughs> Let's do some surveys. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey, filled out by a teenage girl who calls herself Couplet out of rhyme and about her depression. She writes, depression? No, actually, I'm just a failure at everything, and I think I'll stay in bed until I die. Oh, I have thought that thought before, that what if I just never got out of bed, never ate, and just let nature take its course? This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Half Pint about her ADHD. She writes, my brain is like a skillet full of corn kernels popping nonstop. Um, About her alexithymia, which apparently I've never heard of that, but it's an inability to identify your own feelings. My God, I've had that my entire life. She writes, earning my PhD in psychology was an intellectual detour around my feelings. I would imagine there's a lot of therapists that uh, get into it to try to fix themselves. Um, snapshot from her life, she writes, oh, I really related to this one. She writes, I've imagined my mother as an Alzheimer's patient, advanced enough where she has forgotten who I am and she has lost some of her crippling self-consciousness. Uh, my mom is not self-conscious. Uh, I imagine us having a conversation as two people just getting acquainted. Maybe then she would be able to see me for who I am, to connect with me in the moment. Maybe I could rewrite a portion of my own memories of my relationship with her to remember us as having had some moments of deep connection yeah it's it's uh i had that thought um about a year ago that the only way i would feel emotionally safe being in the same room with my mother would be if if she had alzheimer's and didn't recognize me um this is uh same survey filled out by a guy who calls himself sunflower and about his anxiety he writes terrified that someone will talk to me and i won't know what to say and scared that they won't talk to me, and I'll stay lonely and scared. This is filled out by a, <laughs> love this name, a woman who calls herself Closet Weeper. About her love addiction, she writes, The tiniest bit of attention gives me days of fantasies, and another reason to hate myself when I never see you again. Snapshot from her life, I am preoccupied with being in a relationship. I was supposed to spend time with a fellow this evening who I've been seeing sexually once a week for a couple of months. Today I realized I can no longer overlook that we have very little in common. Rather than admit I am not having a good time, I blamed my bad attitude on being hangry, canceled at the last minute, and went shopping to forget about it. I am such an asshole. No, you're not an asshole. And then uh, this one is by Pixie Poser. Uh, and she writes, um, she has all kinds of uh, issues, depression, alcoholism, anorexia, OCD, um, codependency, PTSD, uh, and a snapshot from her life, she writes, throwing up in a toilet from the stench of cigarettes in my hair, flushing, then teaching yoga. My God, somebody does what I've been doing. There's shame. You have boundary issues. I feel guilty for hating my mom. I will be high by 4 p.m. You feel helpless. I will be in hell. 
by 415. Prison was not easy, but I deserved it. I think I'm just addicted to lying. I rubbed my body in mud and I laid in the swamp. Didn't move for six hours. I looked forward to and dreaded each meal at the same time. I think I desperately, desperately wanted to talk about it, but I didn't know how to start the conversation. And that's when I, I called the suicide hotline. A good Craigslist experience is if you are alive at the end of it. So, <laughs> so... That is when I first felt love, like I first felt reaching out to the people and sharing with the other people. Um, this intimate connection where people do stuff for each other without wanting something in return. Yeah, I just, I surrender. And I think I was 28 and that was the first time I ever experienced that and it was amazing. I'm here with uh, Matt Bellis, Dr. Matt Bellis. He's a, a neuropsychologist. It's funny, I've been doing this show for four years. I don't even know what the fuck a neuropsychologist does. It sounds it sounds impressive. What the fuck do you do? Oh, my dad still doesn't know what a neuropsychologist yeah. <laughs> does, so don't feel bad. Um, but basically, it's the study of the brain and behavior. Okay. And a clinical neuropsychologist treats a lot of people with head injuries. A research neuropsychologist does a lot of research on people with head injuries or anything that happens to the brain. And so where do you fall? Well, <laughs> I guess I'm, I'm none of those, uh, given what I do for a career now. Uh, I travel around the country and speak mostly to students about how to protect their brains and how to make healthy choices. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't do clinical work. I don't do research, but I still feel like I'm connected to the, to the field. Yeah, I think it's super important what, what you do because taking it out of the textbook and making it digestible uh, for the average person is, is hugely important, especially with something that complex. Yeah, I would agree. I ran into a therapist a couple weeks ago who said, you know, Matt, I think it's great. More psychologists need to get out of the office and get out to the world, let people know what they do and also just experience, you know, what, uh, you know, non, uh, patients are like. Yeah. You, you have important information that needs to be, uh, imparted. Uh, you're also, uh, a cousin of Joe Matteris, who is a, a former guest and you're a friend of, uh, Guy Winch, who is, uh, one of our, our favorite, uh, guests. Um, where, where should we start? Do you want to talk about yourself personally? Would you rather talk ab about what did it, the, the, the stuff that you like to impart? Uh, where, where, yeah, you know, I'm comfortable with both. Uh, I Let's got, talk about you then. Yeah, I got a phone call a few months ago from a movie or a TV producer who said, uh, we need a psychologist who's funny and you appear to be the only one. <laughs> <laughs> so to me, it's like I can kind of go both places. To be funny, you got to be honest and personal. And to be a psychologist, you have to be professional. So wherever you want to go, really. <laughs> Let's talk about the first time you jerked off. <laughs> What was uh, twelve years old? No. <laughs> what? Where, where were you raised? Uh, New Jersey, North Jersey, Tony Soprano country. Oh yeah, we all have that uh, Paramus, uh, Paramus Mall. Yeah, near there, absolutely. Not too, not too far. I, I grew up. Um, if you're a fan of the Sopranos, I take it. Mm -hmm. It was filmed mostly in Caldwell and Montclair, and I went to Montclair High School. And I think every every Italian in that area has that that. Oh, what is this? Oh, what the fuck? This is a fucking situation, right? They got that that. <laughs> <laughs> inflection that Tony Soprano inflection. So that that's I a like, really good impression. <laughs> do you do impressions? I that's one that I do. I only do a few, but uh, that's one of my favorites. You have to swear with Tony, so I don't do it in front of students. I wish I could, I could do it in front of them. But uh, could you imagine in the middle of your assembly, like, oh, what the fuck? 
<laughs> you fucking kids. Just shut up, sit down and shut the fuck up. Hey, Carmella. <laughs> uh, New Jersey. This is, this is such a useless uh, bit of information, but I wonder if this does mentally affect people. Uh, New Jersey is the most densely populated uh, state. I wonder sometimes, you know, the, the studies that they do with with rats, when rats get really crowded together, they begin to exhibit behaviors that they don't when they're, that's what yeah. I read, that they yeah. don't when they have more room. Yeah, so you may be referencing that study from uh, the gentleman in Canada from the 1970s. Is that, you're thinking Rat Park, that study? It could be. Brilliant yeah. one where um, they took uh, two groups of rats. One was in this idealistic rat environment called Rat Park, and the other mm -hmm. one was crowded and just dirty and the lights were on you know and uh it turns out that the 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 sort of rats that were stressed were the ones when given the opportunity to use a drug like a heroin laced fruity drink drank tons of it really and couldn't stop but the rat park rats they they could taste it and say ah you know this is not for me i have a great life basically i got wow. other things going on so they chose something else uh what was what was your childhood like <laughs> well, uh, it was somewhere in between, I guess, Rat Park <laughs> and the other version. Um, you know, I certainly uh, grew up in very middle class um, America. Little Falls was the specific town I was mm -hmm. in. And then I went to Montclair High School because my mom was a coach and a teacher there. Um, I had to leave my friends in eighth grade. But my dad worked for Merrill Lynch for 30 years. So mm -hmm. we were comfortable, but he was so frugal, so cheap, my father. Oh, really? You'd never know that we were comfortable the way he <laughs> behaved. We didn't get air conditioning until I left for college. Uh, so in the summertime, I have these memories of just lying in bed in July, just sweating, just no clothes on. It was horrible. <laughs> the windows are open. We had these this attic fan that was just blowing hot air on me. <laughs> And then a, a thunderstorm would come through. Thankfully, finally, a storm would roll through. And my, my lunatic Italian father would be running through the house at 3 in the morning, closing the windows because we had those crank windows. You know? Right, because he didn't want it to get wet. <laughs> right. He was so worried that it would warp the wood that he'd run in here. Whoop, 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 boom. Whoop, 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 boom. At 3 in the morning, so he'd finally fall asleep in your sweat. And then oh, you'd like come to it this madman running around closing windows lynette carolla was a, a guest who who also had uh was raised without air conditioning and it came up over and over and over again it really uh it I, my mom was was kind of that way with the with the ac it had to be really hot for the ac to uh to go on and um I just remember a lot of times just heading to the basement because the basement was a, you, you had a basement. No, you didn't. No basement. Oh, I struggled. Yeah, in Illinois, I guess it gets hot too. I remember oh, I spoke out there. So humid, brutal summers. Yeah. 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 Um, so emotionally, what was uh, what was the environment like that you you grew you could up in? Yes, Paul. You could, I'm, I'm a comedian and a psychologist, right? <laughs> so there was no chance that I had a normal, healthy attachment. What what was uh, what was lacking? Well, any discussion of, of feelings. They're, they're, my parents are both type A, the kind, the kind of people get things done. And mm. when when you're that type of my my therapist told me. You know, when, when your parents are that way, they don't have time to talk about feelings. That'll just slow them down. Yeah. So in the one sense, it was good because you got a lot of things done. You can be achievement oriented. In another sense, it's bad because you never talk about anything real. And so I grew up basically where all the attention would go to the negative stuff. In my case, it was my brother 
who when he's older than me, he's five years older, he, he got in a lot of trouble partying, you know, not doing well in school. Mm. And so all the focus went on him and what's wrong with him. And you got to stop this behavior. And I got none. So I grew up, you know, feeling inadequate. And I think that's why I started doing comedy because it was like nobody would pay attention to me. You couldn't even tell a story in my house unless it was funny and engaging. So you had no chance of getting any attention. Were you aware that you were feeling that way when you were a kid? Or was it just kind of uh, subconscious, your your desire for attention? You know, it was palpable. I, it was, I don't know if I was aware right away about the effect it was having on me until I went to a, a leadership conference in New Jersey. Um, and I returned as a counselor and they had a lot of these small group discussions mm -hmm. with caring adults who were oftentimes counselors themselves. And it was like the first time that an adult asked me my opinion and listened. And I could, I remember what it felt like to get the attention of the participants at the conference when I was a counselor and doing skits in front of them. And God, it just felt so incredible. You know, it was, it was, it was a high, you know, and I wanted, I wanted more of it. When did you start uh, performing? So in college, I started a student group and the group became very successful. I went to Bucknell University, big party school, very conservative. And I start this student prevention group that uh, became so successful that the university gave us a, a former fraternity house to live in. You said a student prevention. Did you, did you mean suicide prevention? No, it was substance abuse prevention. Oh, substance abuse, because yeah. you said student prevention. No, I know. It's a confusing term <laughs> like, just to say prevention. You know, it's yeah. just a broad term. But, you know, that that was the goal there. Big drinking okay. problem. We wanted to do something else on campus on the weekends. And did you feel like you made a dent in it at all? Well, you know, any place there's heavy partying going on, there's often a faction of students who don't do that. And all I really wanted to do was to reach out to the students like me who weren't doing those things. And it turns out that there were a lot of students who wanted something else, even if they were partiers, they wanted something else to do every now and again on a weekend. So the group really became successful doing simple things like late night bowling and having comedy shows on campus and, and whatever you could do after 10 o'clock. You know, you could just have people together in a room and not put pressure on them to be getting wasted students would show up and university really was looking for some kind of answer to the problem. So my group, um, was, was given things and the group still exists. It's 21 years old. It's That's still at Bucknell. That's fantastic. And did you, uh, organize it? I, I was the founder. Yeah. That's fantastic. It, it, uh, it changed my life. I mean, honestly, I, I was a little scary at first because you can imagine a bit of a social pariah when you're like, I'm going to start the group that <laughs> non drinkers and drug users. But you know, I was kind of sick of the culture at Bucknell early on. It was very conformist, and I just thought, no, I have to go my own way. And it made all the difference for me, because once the group became successful, I was invited to other schools to speak. And I wasn't good. I was terrible. This was 20 years ago. I was awful. But I knew I had this like natural sort of comedic thing where once I got up there, I could just kind of come up with lines and play off something someone said or did. Um, it wasn't until I started doing stand-up in clubs years later and met my cousin, Joe Matarese, who I didn't know growing up, and I started open for him for about three or four years that everything really started to blossom. Oh, that's fantastic. You you are your generation's Carrie Nation. Carrie Nation? I, I missed the... She was... Uh, oh, Ca Carrie from the movie, Carrie? No, no, no. Carrie, Carrie Nation was one of the uh, original... Uh, uh, 
prohibition. Uh, one of the people that was drink is going to ruin this country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's that's me, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, have you ever struggled with uh, substances, or was it just not a, a something that you cared about? No, in my story, it's it's talking about how my brother struggled failed out of college, had all these problems for a period of about 20 years. And so I immediately went another way and uh, chose a different path. And in some respects, maybe was, you know, just very rigid about it early on. You know, now I'm more of a social activist and I don't drink and do drugs. But, you know, early on, it was like, no, I'm making a statement. You know, I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to put it out there. Like I so saw I, I went, you know, anti what is it? you call me a, a hardcore non-alcoholic, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, also known as a control freak. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, that that certainly was part of it. You know, there was anxiety there, too. You know, both yeah. my parents are very anxious. So I think that played into it, too. Like, oh, if I go down this path, it's going to affect my future. And so I didn't do it. Do you struggle with control issues? Is it difficult to, to, to give up control? You know, not as much now. You know, I, I identified anxiety. Once you, know, you go to grad school and you kind of break down your, your stuff in psychology, I, I did realize the role that anxiety was playing. And so, um, you know, I try to work on it. I, I would say, um, you know, one of the big things that's helped me is, um, you know, other than meditation, which mm -hmm. has been tremendous, transformative, really, performing on stage has been great. You know, it, it manages your anxiety. Surfing is another thing where if I put myself into anxiety-provoking situations that force me to want to control things, I can sort of do, improve my performance by giving up some of that control. Really? And I've seen that in, in performing, like with stand-up. When I was opening for Matt Reese, you know, the first thing as a comic you want to do is just do your material, do your jokes. And he would say, well, you got to do 30 minutes. And I had five. You know, I had so you got to work the crowd. got to work the do something else. You got to, like, let it go, man. Just, like, be in the moment, right? And and that really helped me. It, it, it made me realize, like, look, you can't control everything. Um, you got to You got to relax. Having kids did that, too. I mean... So it's been a, a learning process yeah. for me. Let me ask you uh, some advice. And this is a ridiculous, <laughs> ridiculous um, issue that I have. But it fucks with me is I get nervous when I'm playing a team that I think is going to beat us in hockey. And I can feel the energy drain from my legs. I I don't skate with confidence. I I... I I come from a place of don't fuck up instead of embracing what I know is good about me as a hockey player and it it I feel ridiculous when I'm trapped in that because I don't know how to get out of it how to free myself from that self-imposed feeling of you can't let your teammates down and I don't know what to do <laughs> Yeah, I can definitely relate to that feeling of why my legs feel nervous. <laughs> How yeah. does that even happen that these yeah. legs feel different? Um, you know, I, I think the way I sort of frame it is there's a difference between uh, nerves and, and being nervous. You know, you've got nerves in that situation. And in some ways, that's that's good. That's that's energy. You're aware that this is a different game. You know, it's not every, every game for you. You're playing a, a team you want to beat and you want to beat them badly. I think nervous is when that feeling starts to interfere with your performance and you can see it. You know, you're out there and your your mind isn't you know, present. Mm -hmm. You're not putting forth full effort or you can't, your legs are just feel weak and you can't really exert yourself. In my, in my mind, I don't, you know, I also don't, um, 
what I would do with the puck. If we're playing a team that I'm confident that we're going to beat, I'm going to be more patient with the puck. I'm going to be more creative with what I'm going to do with it because I'm not going to be afraid of it get, getting taken away from me. Mm. Um, so I'll wind up skating more with it. I won't feel that the drained feeling in my legs so I can do more. I can think more freely. Uh, I can be more. It, it's just. I would try a paradoxical intervention with you. I would say, uh, and you, maybe you've done this in stand-up in your lifetime, where you basically say, I'm not going to give a shit about this game. In fact, uh, I'm just going to maybe not even warm up that much. I'm going to tell myself, this is pointless. Who cares? I don't care. This is not going to change the world. It's not going to change me. I don't care about this. And see if that doesn't somehow impact your uh, feeling of, of nerves and, and maybe your performance. And I know in stand-up... Whenever I would get those nerves over some set, some show coming up, and I would say, this is so meaningless. Nobody cares. Nobody cares at this show if you're good. It's not going to change your career. It doesn't matter. And and somehow I would be better as a result of telling myself this. And so it's a paradoxical intervention. You know, you know that always that worked out. for me as a as a performer. In fact, the, the um, TV show that I uh, auditioned for and, and got... Um, I had been auditioning an entire year uh, before that, had never gotten a call back on anything, just tanked it, tanked it, tanked it. And in my mind, I went, oh, I guess I'm not meant to be on camera. I'm going to pursue, uh, you know, being a writer. And I, so I got this audition and I was like, I don't give a shit about this thing. I'm not going to, I'm not going to get it anyway. And so I didn't care. And I made fun of the person that I was auditioning with and they loved it. And I got cast. I and I could do that thing when it when it came to doing stand up and and performing. But for some reason, something triggers me in sports, and I can't I can't get to that place, and it drives me fucking crazy because it's so it doesn't matter. And I understand intellectually mm-hmm. that it doesn't matter, mm-hmm. but I, it's like my body can't receive that message. My body can't let go. Well, so then the next question would be, is it rare that you find yourself in those games in hockey where you're just like, it's the championship? I mean, is it like every couple of years you're around it, or is this like every season no, you it, have it, one of these games? Yeah, it, it, probably every every third game I play will oh, be, really? a, will be a game where I feel like uh, just that, that feeling. just that I don't, I don't even know the word for it, but it's just a feeling of... Um, almost like doom. Hmm. See, I'm surprised to hear it happens that often because usually the body doesn't really maintain nerves in the face of, uh, you know, ex- repeated exposures, right? Mm-hmm. So your brain at some point just realizes like, look, this is a waste of energy and the body doesn't want to waste energy. So why are we wasting energy on this? You know, this, this game isn't going to threaten our lives, you know? If it was like once every two, three years where you finally make the championship, then mm-hmm. I could kind of understand like, well, you know, that, that that makes sense, but if it's happened every third game, that that is unusual. Yeah, and it's it's not always. Uh, sometimes it's very very mild. Other mm-hmm. times it's it's worse. But it's because I play once a week where there's no league and it's just a pickup. I know how I can play when there's no pressure, mm. and I'm just playing for the love of it. And I've and I've honestly considered just stopping playing a competitive hockey and just playing in pickups um but i i would really love to try
try to get some type of of breakthrough with this. And I feel silly talking about it because, you know, we talk about stuff on this show that is so serious and where <laughs> people's lives are negatively affected. And, you know, there are people out there right now that are like, I can't stop cutting myself. You know, I'm I weigh 90 pounds and I, I, I can't bring myself to eat. And here I am like, oh, my slap shot's a little weak. <laughs> you know. Well, you just described, you know, the classic uh, symptoms of someone who who has mental illness. Let's be honest. When you have patients in an office, they're going to sit there. Someone with an eating disorder, it, you know, is obsessing over the calories they just took in. The therapist, you know, themselves could be going through some major life crisis, and this patient doesn't care about anything. Doesn't care about nine eleven. Doesn't care about you know. Like it's just mm-hmm. like I had too much of that you know soy drink and that's all you know, like, so like you have we have a history you talked on your podcast many times of mental illness so like that makes sense to me that your mind would go there even for a hockey game and uh you know i i think ultimately this is something you're recognizing something you want to work on i wouldn't give up hockey for it uh, in, in fact i would um well, just, there's there's no thought of giving up hockey. It's giving up uh, competing. Competing. Yeah, I yeah. wouldn't. I wouldn't give up competing if I was you. If I was no. in your position, um, I would. I would just try to accept that that's how your mind works when it competitions. You know, is sort mm-hmm. of uh, a part of it. You know, there's a a masculine some sort of reaction that you have. The testosterone kicks in, and you become maybe hyper aware of things that you wouldn't be aware of in a pickup game. You believe that it affects your performance. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But on some level, I think if you can kind of accept that this is happening um, and just go with it and say, well, this is who I am. I'm, I'm, I'm going to play anyway because I'm not going to quit. Uh, I, I do think that you'll have a better experience, at least, of the game. I don't know if it will enhance your performance. Um, but uh, it's it's okay, basically. It's okay. It'll be, not just because it's a pickup game, just because it's you. That's who you are. I'm sure there's professional athletes who have the same feelings when there's big games that come. Why does my body feel different? I don't think I'm performing at my best. I remember I had a patient one time. This cracked me up. This guy was a genius. I mean, like uh, IQ off the charts, right? And his whole presenting problem was, I have ADHD. I have adult ADHD. You're like, okay, well, we'll test you. And so we're giving this IQ test, and the guy is getting every question right. He misses like one question. And he goes, see, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> I have ADHD. I-, I can't pay attention on that question. I got it wrong. I know I got it wrong. And we're like, the guy's a genius, right? His problem is not ADHD. <laughs> Far from it. He, you know, he's he's got this unbelievable awareness of his intellectual abilities. And when he misses a problem, he's looking for a reason why he screwed wow. up. And, uh, you know, on some level, you're very self-aware and perhaps you're really in touch with this and it bothers you. You don't like it. You want to get rid of it. But sometimes we just got to just go with it. You know? Yeah, maybe I should just make peace make peace with that. Um, so talk about some of the things that um, you would like the the listeners to know that, that you have learned and discovered being a, a neuropsychologist? You know, my, my main focus, I wrote a book called A Better High, and it, it's all about uh, finding healthy ways to change your brain chemistry, be it going for a run, be it uh, eating you know healthy foods, helping other people, uh, laughing, all these things. And um, I think what, and I know you're, you're a, certainly someone who's talked a lot about medication on the podcast, and I agree with you that there are, there are conditions that are uh, really necessary uh, for, for meds and um, helpful 
to yeah. get patients into therapy. But there's a whole uh, group of people who've been, you know, for various reasons, put on medications that, that should have tried other, uh, you know, avenues first. Yeah, and, I always say med should be the last house on the block. <laughs> That's, yeah, I agree with that. A hundred percent. And so my whole focus is about that. Like, what are some of these other ways that we can try to help you cope with, with this life, this world that we live in? Um, especially for young people. I mean, that's, that's my target audience. High school age students, middle school, college students. Why are they being put on these drugs first? They're the last ones who should go on the meds. Uh, they should try all these other avenues first, especially if their conditions aren't so severe that it's, you know, keeping them from school or having them think about suicide. So I think that that's that's my main focus here is is the culture we live in is so much about the chemicals, whether it's the pharmaceutical drugs or the recreational drugs or the the flavor chemicals in every food that we have. You can't escape them now. Like I just I feel like I got depressed about a year ago, um, just especially with all this talk of uh, legalizing marijuana. Not that I don't see that there are some benefits to the conversation, but more just the sort of kind of obnoxious, ignorant way that people went about like, oh, yes, another drug that we're like, and this is fine. It's totally safe. And it's like, come on, we've heard this before. Like, there's no drug out there that's the answer for the world's problems. It's just another drug. Yeah. What we really need are healthier solutions. And for me, meditation is what kind of helped me get through that depression feeling where it was like, wow, th this was like a whole new world for me doing doing that. Now, talk about what you felt when you first started to feel success from meditating and describe the way that you meditated. So um, I had tried mindfulness meditation before and I couldn't really take to it. And that's where you bring your focus to parts of your body mm -hmm. and just try to be as present as possible and notice physical sensations in, in the hopes that it distracts your brain from or focuses your brain into the present so that you're not thinking, oh, I got to go to the laundry you know, after this, I, oh my God, I forgot to pay the bill for, et cetera. All true. All true. I found like it was uh, exerting a lot of energy. Mm -hmm. And so I would burn out just feeling like, oh, you know, it didn't feel restful to me. You know, I felt like I was, my mind was really working to, to hold that focus. Um, and so I stopped for a while and then uh, I ran into a, a guy at my gym who, who has been a, a transcendental meditator for 40 years. And he, he said he was starting up a, a That's course. That's the kind that I do. Oh, you do? GM, GM, yeah. GM, yeah. And I had I had seen Jerry Seinfeld talk about this, mm -hmm. and I had heard about all these uh, different folks who, who've done it. Um, but until I had him as my instructor, um, I didn't really get it. you know. And he said, look, it's not about exerting effort. The idea is to let your mind settle. And so I got the mantra, and I mean, I, I couldn't believe within the first week, the biggest change for me was at night, kids are asleep. I'm tired, but my wife's got a list of nine things that have to be done before I can go to bed, mm -hmm. which is like, it just kills me. I'm like, I'm tired and I want to go to bed, but no, no, you got to do this, go to this. And she's working hard too. So neither one of us are going to bed. And I would get so agitated with her every night. And as soon as I started doing TM, it was like, it was like water rolling off a duck's back. It was like, okay, what do I got to do? And I would do these things. I wouldn't get agitated. And you, and this would be hours after you had meditated. So right. you're the, the gift of the meditation was throughout your waking hours. Absolutely. Yeah. It was paying back. The, um, mantra for those who aren't familiar with TM is a, uh, phrase that your teacher gives you that has no meaning and doesn't sound like a phrase in, in our language. 
and you kind of you don't say it out loud but you say it in in your mind mm-hmm. you repeat it and i suppose what makes it work is because there is no value attached to that phrase it doesn't make you think of anything in particular that your your brain just kind of winds down yeah um, and eventually you can let the mantra sort of drop away you're not actively saying it you're thinking it perhaps and then eventually you get to this transcendental state where you're kind of just there and that's that's the place where i don't know if i'm awake i'm asleep but when i come out i'm just like it's like a reset button you know seinfeld said it's like plugging in your cell phone (laughs) for the first time like whoa i can't believe it's like a whole new day yeah sometimes you'll you'll open your eyes and you'll because i do it for 20 minutes and i'll open my eyes and i'll realize oh my god where'd the last 15 minutes go but honestly, some days it's 20 minutes of me thinking about myself with my eyes closed. Yeah, yeah. And my my teacher told me, that's okay, too. There is no bad meditating. Talk talk some more about what you have learned about uh, meditation. Yeah, so the brain does something amazing. I mean, um, the ability to refocus yourself and you notice yourself, you know, becoming distracted and then thinking the mantra and bring yourself back, it activates a part of your frontal lobe called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. I was going to say that. It'll be on the test, so you should probably <laughs> write it down. Um, but yeah, this little brain structure is kind of like a muscle, and you can build it up over time, strengthen it. And it's so fascinating that your brain has this ability to go from an emotional place, like the amygdala is activated with blood and electricity, that's in the limbic mm-hmm. system, and then you refocus using your frontal lobe, which is the reasoning center, and your mind is able to, to do that um, without you really doing much else except thinking your mantra. But the benefit comes later on. When you step into a stressful situation, um, you feel the emotion kick in, and it's almost like effortlessly your frontal lobe starts up and says, nope, we're going to wrestle away the focus and and calm you down. There's no reason to get upset here. Uh, It happened to me today. I was doing a presentation at a middle school, and the students are being disrespectful, and they're talking. And I got to tell you, years ago, before TM... I would have used that Sicilian part of me, that, that, that little Al Pacino would come out, little Tony <laughs> Soprano, and be like, you know, kind of yell at the audience for a minute. Yeah. I'm not a yeller kind of a speaker, but for a few seconds, that could work. Everyone, these kids who probably don't listen to many adults until they yell, would suddenly listen to me. And I don't do that anymore. Um, I'm glad I don't do that anymore, because I felt badly about myself when I would do it. Now, I catch myself, my breathing changes, I calm down. And I'm just in the moment like, no, no, I'm not, this is, I'm not going to own this. This is on them, not me. It's, it's a perspective that helps me make better choices when emotion kicks in. And do you do it once a day or twice a day? I'm on a good day, I do it twice. I try to do it. I haven't done it in years twice a day. But when I first started doing it, the second day I did it on the second meditation, it was profound. I went into the, I meditate for 20 minutes and I went into the kitchen to go wash dishes and it felt like I was moving through water. It just uh-huh. felt every my body felt different. Everything just felt uh flowing. There was just a flow to it that I don't know any other way to describe it. Um but I haven't done the twice a day in forever and maybe I need to maybe I need to to start doing that again. The other thing I wanted to mention was when you talked about that that 
muscle in your brain that it activates. I get this feeling in my head sometimes when I'm meditating where I can feel it's almost like it's not painful, but it's almost like an ice cream headache where I feel a certain muscle in my brain activate. I can feel it. It's somewhere kind of towards the front and I feel a little bit on the sides hmm. as well. Um, almost like, almost like, um, like something had been cramped and it's, and it's kind of, uh, letting go and, and I'm suddenly aware of the sen, the sensation. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, I've had similar feelings of uh, noticing things while meditating that I was like, oh, I didn't even realize that that was there, that feeling, that thing. Yeah. You know, I, I know what you're saying. I mean, you know, the the frontal lobe, of course, you know, it being brain tissue, it's it doesn't have any nerve endings in it, but it controls, you know, your muscles. Uh, the, the frontal lobe has a motor cortex, which um, definitely uh, can release uh, certain muscles and and you can sense those what else would you like uh listeners to know about meditation well i i think i want to take some away take away the mysticism behind it some people think that there, there's something you know about it that's complicated i the hardest part is the practicing of it you know, you do see the benefits the more you do it over time and it becomes easier i think to get i look forward to it it's a treat to me. When, when you, I remember speaking of uh, Joe Matarisa, I told him um, a while back about meditation. And uh, I know he uses Celexa and other medications and it's helped him. And I said, Joe, for my anger, you know, I use TM and it's so incredible. And it's 20 minutes twice a day. And he says to me, wow, that's a big investment. <laughs> and I was like, bigger than medication? And, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't see it as a huge investment. I look forward to the 20 minutes. And if it's only once a day, that's fine too. But you know, to me, it's it's totally worth it. Um, and uh, I, I think people just look at it as like, oh, I can't give up that kind of time. It's not giving up. It's actually going to add to your life. That's the hardest thing to remember for me to remember because I I can do it that once a day one. But um, well, God, we just get into this thing where we're like, oh, I, I don't have time for that. But we do. Yeah, we do. I look, you know, I'm playing Scrabble for an hour and a half. So maybe I cut that back to an hour and 10 minutes. And and uh, but why is it that we have that that voice in our brain that that is just like, oh, you're on the clock. Tap, tap, tap on the watch. How do yeah. we how do we genuinely get ourselves to not believe that lie? I do think there's effort in sitting and and being in, in a quiet place now really hard we're in a time in, in our world um where we have so many distractions going on we're so connected um to just give that up for 20 minutes is effortful so to put yourself in that chair it seems like a lot of work once you get there it's incredibly rewarding but you know breaking away is hard it's, it's like going on a vacation and giving you know putting your cell phone away it's so hard but when you do it you're like oh I'm so glad i did that I think that's why. That's what I notice anyways. Like in my head, it's like, oh, really? You know, like I got to stop this. I'm, I was getting a lot of done. Yeah. That's the other thing. Like in afternoon meditation, I usually do around four o'clock. And by two, I'm like, oh, am I going to be able to do it? What am I not going to get done because I got to do the meditation? That's I, that's what I go through. And it's funny because when I give things up, I say, oh, I didn't really need to do that errand. I really didn't need it. I could do that tomorrow. You know, this meditation, though, it's going to make me feel better tonight. 
when I'm interacting with my family and I'm not snapping at anybody, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to feel better in terms of my cardiovascular system because I know that I have a steadier sort of breathing pattern mm-hmm. after I do TM and I just, I just generally feel better about myself. Uh, the other th- thing I would uh, mention to anybody who is going to try meditation is, um, and this is just my opinion, but don't say, I'm just going to sit and meditate for as long as I feel like uh, meditating, because that's almost like saying to a kid, have as much candy as you want. Your your brain wants stimuli, and I, I think the importance of meditation is is just kind of getting a breather from that from that stimuli and it's it um for me it has to be i'm going to do it for 20 minutes it and that's the amount of time i guess they found is ideal twice a day for 20 minutes um apparently yeah i have an app do you use an app for uh, timing yourself no i have a clock that is within eyesight um, and every once in a while, I'll just kind of crack my eye open and, and check on the clock. But it's funny, after about a half a year of doing it, within a minute, I could tell when it was <laughs> when it was 20 minutes. Yeah. Um, but I think that's the hardest thing for people that are starting to meditate is to um, to give themselves that, that, that 20 minutes. And uh, I really urge people to not... Just say, well, you know, I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna do it until I feel like not doing it because your brain is always gonna say, you should go do that thing, you should go do that thing, you should go do that thing, mm. and it will. At least my experience has been, it has to be kind of set in stone that it's gonna be 20 minutes. Yeah, no, I agree, and it's not not nearly as hard as you think. Once you get in the mode, you're gonna really look forward to it, and especially when you get that, have that day when you begin to feel stuff uh, roll off. Um, what are some other natural highs that uh, you're a big proponent of? Was there well, anything more on meditation that you wanted to uh, talk about? You know, I, I'm a relative novice to it. You know, I've, I've really only been doing TM since uh, November. Um, but uh, I certainly have been reading about it and, and talking about it for a long time. I started doing it with presenting it, at least, to students, just letting them know, like, hey, you can do this. And I assumed the first time I did it in front of an audience, like, I'll have, I'll have a thousand students in an auditorium, and I'll have them close their eyes and think about breathing. I don't give them a mantra. But um, initially, I thought, there's no way they're going to go for this. Like, these kids, they're going to burp, they're going to make noise. And some mm-hmm. of them do, and it's kind of funny. But for the most part, 99% of them get into it. And I, I think they get into it because they're looking for an escape as well. I mean, they're exhausted. These kids got to get up really early for school. They're overstimulated. When I was a kid, if you if you're going to be bullied, someone had to bully you in school to your face, right? Now a kid get bullied at you know midnight on his phone. He was lying in bed, and uh, that has an effect on your nervous system. You know these things are irritants. I think that's the best way to describe it. Is it's like your nervous system is an instrument for receiving the world, but our instruments are like irritated. By all the information and the garbage, you're on Twitter reading all the negativity. You know, there's everyone wants your attention. You know, you go on some website about the news, and they're like, "Oh, did you know? You know, Ebola and ISIS and Tom Brady knew what about his balls? Like, there's just <laughs> constant information, right? And we can't get away from it. You know, back, you know, even my dad, you know, was my age. He'd come home from work, and that that was it. You know, he has newspaper maybe to pick up, but. There wasn't a constant barrage often of this 
this information, and that's what's doing it. And sleep isn't enough. And also, I think the feeling that something is going on without us, which wasn't as big of a deal 40 years ago, because there wasn't an internet, so and there was three channels, and there really, it was like, but now, it's, oh, where's the new app? What's the, who's this great new band? Oh, what's this viral thing on YouTube? And uh, I think if you are, if you have the gene in you that feels like you're always going to miss out on something, um, God, you could really benefit from, from meditating. It's so true. No, it's which so is true. the exact opposite of what your intellect is telling you, which mm. is that you don't have time to meditate. Yeah, and, and, and type A people are the ones who benefit the most, and they're the ones who are most apt to say, I, oh, no way, I could never give up that time. That's so interesting to me. Yeah. I think for a lot of people, you have to the pain has to become so bad that you're willing to try something that you think is ridiculous. And that, I was at that point. Yeah. Honestly, in, in, in my interactions with my family, it got to the point where I have a two-year-old and a five-year-old, and I, lo- I love them to death. Um, but I would find myself so stressed out over the littlest things. And I, I, I thought, this, this has got to stop. I, I, I love them. I care for them. But I'm, I'm like agitated with them all the time. It's like a scratch that keeps getting, you know, infect, affected by, by the rubbing. And I, it's got to, and, and, and TM calmed it down. It was like a salve that just like covered it over. It sounds like it's been the most important tool in you learning to deal with, uh, yourself. It, it really has. Certainly over the last, uh, year or so, it's, it's been transformational. And uh, I never thought it would be. I, I was a critic, you know, and initially mm-hmm. I thought, come on, there's no way. This really? But it, it, it was, it's been profound. And I, uh, I, I, can't, I can't say enough good things about it because it fits into this natural high thing, too, mm-hmm. where it's like, I'm not taking a pill. And it's the last thing we need is another pill to deal with this. This is the antithesis of that. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's so uh, elegant is the word I would use to describe TM. Jerry Seinfeld apparently said that he, if because he cut back from twice a day to once a day, and he said that he believes that if he had still been meditating twice a day, Seinfeld would still be on the air. <laughs> really? He yeah. did say that? Yeah. I knew he said that TM got him through doing the show. He would meditate instead of a lunch. Yeah. He would do it. Did you, you probably saw that clip too. I didn't. He, no. That was amazing. I was such a fan of the show. But over lunch, everyone else would eat. He would do TM. Then he would eat while they were filming the show, um, but that's what got him through. It's what helped him survive that one meditation. I'm sure had he done it twice, it would have been even better for him. I always found the morning TM is more active, though, mentally. You know, I do have a lot more thoughts, mm-hmm. and I try not to judge it. Uh, the afternoon one is, is definitely the more restful one, where it's like, wow, mm-hmm. I really needed that. The, the thing that my uh, medita- meditation teacher said is don't meditate um right after you've had a big meal or had caffeine and so i try i try not and you also don't want to meditate within what is it like four hours of going to sleep something like that five hours of going to sleep all true yeah Yeah. uh what else would you like to talk about you know i i think that uh there are so many natural highs and that that go sort of they're taken for granted you know you, you live here in los angeles and the weather's phenomenal I'm actually happy that I live in a, a place where the weather's horrible most of the year. Because when I come out here, I, I appreciate it so much. It, I notice how much it changes my mood if I come out, especially in the winter. Um, and one of the things I love to do is to get in the ocean within hours of landing. I have my wetsuit, I rent a board, and I get out there. 
And some of my friends are like, well, you're crazy. What do you, you just rent board? I don't understand. You just go out. Yeah. I just get in the water. Even if I'm not able to catch a wave that day, I really don't care because my, my brain will try to be negative and tell me, don't do it. You're tired. Really? You want to get wet? Like, you know, but I, I remind myself, no, you're going to feel better within 30 seconds of getting in that water. Something chemical is going to happen in your brain. You will feel different. There are negative ions in the air, and they're, they're everywhere, but they're highest at the beach and in the mountains. And so if you've ever been to the ocean and felt that, like, oh, that relaxing... Every time. Every time. So that's, what, that's what's happening. I don't ever remember being stressed at the beach or in the... Actually, one time I remember being stressed in the mountains because I took too long to uh, shut my camp down, and everybody else... Uh, we were mountain climbing, ice climbing, and everybody else was heading down the glacier, and I was last, and I was fucking panicked. I felt abandoned. <laughs> Every single issue I ever had came up. I tears were balling up in my throat. But every other time in the mountain, I've uh, I've had an incredible, incredible experience. Well, that'll override the negative ions, I yeah. guess. Yeah, abandonment <laughs> issues. That's the ace of spades that trumps everything. Uh, so talk talk some more about uh, uh, the ocean. Yeah, so for me, there's uh, I love the movie Chasing Mavericks. You ever see that movie? Yes, Gerard Butler, where he's basically saying like, like, there's some people that are just of the sea. You know, they came from the sea. They have to like return to the sea. And I, I feel that way. Some connection to it, where you know, I, I see so many parallels between comedy and surfing. Like a joke is like a wave. It exists for a few seconds and then it's gone. And it has its own rhythm and its own length. Mm -hmm. And there's times you know when you are riding it perfectly and yes. it connects to the next joke and it's fucking effortless it's the greatest high absolutely yeah and and they are so similar in that regard and and just like comedy you know some days you get to the water and and the ocean is rough and it doesn't care about you and you're not going to do well and you just have to try to hang on for your life and other days it just seems like you can do no wrong and that's that's what i love those days where um, you really feel like every turn you make was the right one and you're hooting and hollering and you're just so happy and you don't, you don't remember a time where you were that happy, you know, before, like, it's like, this is the greatest I've ever felt in my life. Um, and, and that happens in comedy. It, it happens for me when I speak to students like this afternoon where I was in front of a, an audience that I could do no wrong. It felt like everything that came out of my mouth worked and it felt so good. And so, I think I just want to remind people that those things are out there in the world, and sometimes the negativity in our schedules um, just kind of cloud them over. And we forget about these simple things that don't have to be complicated, that change how you feel, and it happens quickly, and you don't need a chemical all the time to do it. Um, I think that's, that's the one message that I, I try to get out there all the time to people. It's like, we have a choice. And, and yes, there are certain benefits for using medications and chemicals at times, but don't forget, you know, the value of these natural things. So how about people that um, don't have access to a beach? Go, go for a sure. run, do some kind of cardiovascular sport. What's, what's the minimum amount of time? Oh, well, let's put it this way. What is the ideal frequency and duration of exercise um, on, the, on the lower end? Yeah, so other studies... It's doable. Yeah, it's a good question. And, and I, I speak all over the, the country and to Canada, places where they don't have access to, you know, waves all the time. And, uh, but everyone can run, certainly. And running outside is, is better than running inside in terms of the natural high when they assess quality of life. 
So um, or walking if you if you're or, if you're yeah. um, not ambulatory. I'm not a runner myself. I have knee problems. So biking does it for me. Just getting up and going for a walk uh, definitely does it. Thirty minutes seems to be this magic zone of cardio um, that releases endorphins. One of the endorphins is called anandamide, which interestingly, anandamide, chemically speaking, looks almost identical to THC, the active ingredient in marijuana. Right, so they look so similar. But the side effects of the two are so different, um, meaning that if you interview uh, runners and, and, and weed smokers, subjectively, the feelings are they're close. They're like, oh, I feel a sense of relaxation, um, well-being, maybe a sense of connectedness to the world. But the side effects of like running is so good for your, your brain functioning. It actually improves your memory um, by increasing a brain structure called the hippocampus. Whereas if you look at teenagers, for example, who smoke weed every day, they have the opposite effect. Their hippocampus gets smaller, their memory gets worse. Um, so let's take exercise. 30 minutes being that magic number has all these benefits you know, chemically for your brain. Anyone can do it. Um, I even, think. even if you're just out taking a, a, a leisurely walk for 30 minutes, it's better than not, right. than not walking. Right. And we're doing so much sitting now, too. I mean, whether it's... You know, we sit at work, they come mm-hmm. home, you sit in front of the TV or video games. So that walk is so important to your cardiovascular system, just moving the blood around. Mm-hmm. The thing I encourage people to do, uh, because, you know, there's always that part of your brain that just wants to shit on anything that is good for you, that makes it seem unattainable. I wouldn't be able to do that. So I, I, I like to say... You know, if somebody's telling you, you know, you should start running, start with the most ridiculously small baby step you can imagine. Just say today, I'm just going to go walk around the block. And then tomorrow, I'm going to maybe walk around a block and a half. And before you know it, you'll feel like walking four blocks. And before you know it, you'll feel like running a quarter of a mile. And eventually, maybe you'll even be running a mile. So true. It's empowering to see yourself, you know, make gains like that. In my book, I actually have a little schedule of like, try exactly what you're saying. Walk a little, jog a little, build up and see what happens. I I think anyone who's ever acquired a skill has done that at some point in their life. With stand-up, you start with five minutes at an open mic, right? And eventually you're you're building up. With surfing, for me, it was like you have an instructor and you're doing the baby waves and then you kind of build up. And it feels so good just to see yourself through that process. Humans can do that throughout the lifespan. You can be 90 years old and start picking up you know, some new skill and it's still going to feel good. I'm, I'm sure I'm not 90 yet. I have a couple of years to go, but what are, what are some other things that, that people can do to uh, improve their mood? You know, I helping other people. And it, this is such a big one too to, to get away from yourself. Louis CK, uh, this great interview on NPR. I don't, I don't know if you caught it, but he talked about how having kids for him, was so freeing because if he focused all of his energy on his career, he could never get it right. But he knew that if he focused all his energy on being a dad for a period of time, he could at least feel good about that work. Like, I did my best today as a dad, and isn't that great? Um, and I feel the same way. Like, if you focus your energies on someone else, uh, helping other people, those less fortunate, you know, you walk away feeling like you've, you've done something. Um, you know, I, I was at a crossroads in my career where I did a couple of things in comedy 
that uh, were exciting, you know, for me at the time. Uh, did this show called World's Dumbest on True TV, and I, my cousin Joe and I were doing this uh, other th- idea, and, and so it was like, oh, maybe maybe comedy has this path for me. Maybe maybe fame and fortune are for me, you know. And and I kind of pulled back the reins when I, I realized, like, you know what. Um, I don't know that that's futures out there for me or not, but the pursuit of fame is, is so much about me. It's so self-centered that I don't think that's going to lead to happiness. Even if I get it, I don't think that's going to do it for me. I'd much rather try to use this comedic ability to help other people to deliver a message that's not getting out there otherwise. And, um, I think I chose as much as it took me years to accept it. I think I chose the right path. Because helping others, you know, makes you feel good. Oxytocin gets released in your brain when you help others. It's called the helper's high. Uh, and I get that feeling whenever I get an email from a student that'll say something like, you don't realize what you did for me. You came in here, you did this presentation, you made me realize some things. It was so helpful. And sometimes you get it years later and you think, how in the hell did anything I did when you were in high school impact you today? That's not possible. But here the email says you did it. So it feels so good to me. I couldn't agree more. It really quiets that mean part of my brain that tells me I don't do enough, I don't have enough, and I'm not enough. And if you have that mean part of your brain, you need a defense attorney. And being of service is the greatest defense attorney to combat that that mean voice in your your head. Um, Those moments when you know... Talk about those moments when you know that that's where you're supposed to be? You know, for, for me, you get lost. It's like a flow, you know, this sort of sense of you don't care about time. You know, you're just, you're where you, you should be. Um, it's it's kind of effortless. So go back to TM right there. I think that's, that's where you know you're in the right spot. Um, it always helps when you have a receptive audience. You know, you don't want to be feeling like you're doing more work than the people you're trying to <laughs> to help. But, um, you know, I, I for me as a human being, um, it just, it feels like I'm where I should be. I'm in the right place. And, and as much as, as like doing stand-up on a Saturday night and killing felt great, um, it never had the, like the level of the depth and the fulfillment as, as doing, you know, what I'm, I'm doing now. So it's like, I don't, I, I don't become neurotic after a really great presentation like I would do after a great comedy set where I'm like, geez, I, I don't know if I got that joke right or, you know. Yeah. It, it, for me, it, it feels like when I'm, when I'm in that moment and um, being of service, there's this feeling like, like the universe is expressing itself through me and I'm just kind of a witness who made the decision to show up and then I get to kind of watch what happens and and I get this incredible byproduct which is a sense of peace and meaning and purpose um, but there's almost always this really cool uh, something something cool winds up happening um, you know let's say I'm, I'm going to help somebody move or something and all of a sudden a parking space right in front opens up or, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to do something else and just the right thing happens at the right time. And it's happened so 
many times when I've gone to to be of service or to to volunteer that I know it's 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 somehow linked that there there is something to positive energy in the universe to be it love or honesty or you know those principles that we like to talk about but so often we don't really embody as much as we'd like to um does that ring true for you absolutely you totally reminded me of something that happened near your hometown actually uh, barrington illinois you mm-hmm. know north of chicago I, I was doing a presentation for middle school students and i have this interactive where i get students on stage and i'm asking them questions about their natural high and I try to guess it, and it's 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 a whole funny thing. But I had a student on stage who was really wasn't giving answers that made any sense. And I asked him like, "Well, where do you do it?" And he said, "In my mind." And you know, what do you use? And he goes, "Outer space." Like it didn't make any sense. I get to the end, and I said, "Okay, Liam, I have no idea. What is your natural high?" And he now imagine this: he's in front of his entire middle school, and he turns to them and he says, "You know, I get bullied at this school, and I feel terrible about myself." And every time I do, I go into my imagination and I become a superhero who can do no wrong. Now, the school erupts in applause, standing ovation, like a Napoleon Dynamite moment, right? They would not stop cheering. And I was standing there feeling like you just described, like I'm just fortunate to be here to witness this, even though I set it up. I gave this kid the opportunity to do it. But I'm like, wow, this... This isn't even running because of me anymore. This has got a whole energy it's of its bigger own. than you. Totally yeah. bigger than me. And after it died down, people start coming up to me, telling me about this kid. I get emails days later, weeks later. One of them was from a, from a counselor of his who said, you don't understand. This kid hates school. He used to hate school. He'd run away from school. He'd have to tackle him and bring him back. But after that one thing that you did, that moment changed his life because now he's in the hallways high-fiving, kids are hugging him, telling him he's great. Like, it, it did something for wow. him. He's got a confidence now. And I, I don't know how he is today. I hope things have sustained. He, t- still- he took his own life last weekend. <laughs> <laughs> but at least for those few days. For that week, he was golden. <laughs> that was the highlight of his life. Um, that is beautiful. But that I, is- I felt exactly what you described, that I had stepped in. You, the, the shows you get to witness... When you when you do the right thing, um, are I and I know ninety nine point nine percent of the audience knows this. I think we just need to be reminded of it because my brain goes to that place of I don't have enough, I don't do enough, I'm not enough. I've got a I got to hustle something up right now, um, or I want to shut everything out and just play Scrabble. You know what I mean? Like all or nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, do you struggle with black and white thinking, or are you pretty good with nuanced gray? Uh, you know, it 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 oftentimes depends. I do struggle with it. Yeah, to answer your question. You know, it depends on the the mood that I'm in. I find that if I'm tending towards the negative, you know, I go right to the black and white thinking. Like it's all is lost. You just get this feeling of like, oh, what's the point? You know. Um, I do think TM has helped me with that too, where I, I, I try to be a better advocate for myself and say, you know, you're just tired right now, or you know, you need a little bit, little mental break. My wife is good too. She's, I just love her so much. Her ability to ground me and and be that that sort of you know, in therapy you do. I, I was trained in cognitive behavioral therapy, and so you know, she sort of is that voice of reason sometimes that kind of 
challenges me in a good way to say, nah, there's another perspective here. Because if, if I'm if I'm being negative, I'll go black and white, and she'll stop me and say, there, there might be a third option here. So, yeah, I think we all, any performer probably does that. You know, we we had that tendency to take a big risk, and we want to go for it all. And if it doesn't happen, well, then it's all for nothing. And that's just... I found so many comedians who said that they got into comedy to be famous, and then I would ask them, well, what does that mean? Define that. And they had a hard time. It was like, well, a sitcom on NBC, that's it? Well, what if you have that? And like, you know, is it making a certain amount of money? They couldn't really put their finger on it. You know, I, I've shared this. That, was there something more you wanted? No, to, no. Or? I just think that's the black and white. That like yeah. you had this thinking, like famous or nothing. Well, but what if famous is kind of too gray? Subconsciously, I never wanted to admit that to myself, um, but I really did. I wanted fame. I wanted recognition. And I think the moment when I realized that it was that I was chasing my own tail was. Um, I used to drive down Sunset Boulevard and, you know, you see the big billboards or the faces on the side of a building. And I would always think those people have made it. They have arrived. You know what I mean? (laughs) And then one year when we were doing dinner in a movie, they took out a big billboard on Sunset Boulevard and in New York, our faces on six stories on the side of a building in New York. And I went and looked at the billboard on Sunset Boulevard. And I lost respect for Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> and I wish I wish I was kidding, but I was. And that and that I wasn't sober yet, but that was the, the first inkling that I was chasing a ghost. That 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 it was nothing that would ever be that I would ever be able to feel, that it would always be ephemeral hmm. and fleeting. And when I got sober and I started to have to get outside myself and pick up the phone and say, hey, new guy that's only been sober for a day, how are you doing today? Or go make coffee or set up chairs or whatever. I began to get that feeling that Mm. that you and I were talking about. And I suddenly went, oh, that's what spirituality is. Because I used to always think spirituality just meant talking about Jesus or whatever. I didn't realize that it meant The thing that's hard to say, uh, that peace, finding finding a way to be at peace with the world as it is, um, that I'm having trouble putting it into yeah. into words. But it's connecting with other human spirits. It's doing meaningful work. You know, all these things make you feel more connected to the greater world that we're in. And it sounds like, and I remember watching dinner in a movie too and i certainly know who you are from that um but i can see how seeing your face on the bulletin board suddenly you realize like oh i was chasing that and here it is and it was really scary it It was scary because i i I suddenly thought to myself what's it going to take for me to feel peace Hmm. and it i got really suicidal after that uh it was two or three years of um because then i would drink more because i would at least feel euphoria during the first two hours of my drinking sure but then that started to spiral out of control and it was i i, I honestly thought i need to die i i never it never occurred to me that meaning and purpose would save my life 
has this podcast, I mean, you've provided so much meaning to the listeners, me included, but has it done that for you as well? Absolutely. It absolutely does. But I get as much, I say this all the time, but I get as much from, from doing this as, as I, you know what I mean? Because I, I get comforted by people. I get comforting emails from people that when I'm struggling, I get honest about it on the podcast and people will reach out and say, you know, just want to let you know I'm thinking about you. And so it's definitely, it's a, it's a two-way street. It's not like I'm, uh, you know. <laughs> well, and you should. You, you have a talent for it. I was listening to the Tom Kramer episode. another friend of ours we have in common. And uh, I was just blown away by your your ability to to get tom to talk about something that you never i told i emailed tom about this and i said you know if if i saw the scene he described when he was a, a teenager in that that hotel room the older yeah. gentleman that, like if that was in a movie we would talk about that scene forever you'd never forget it and he lived that and you you made him feel comfortable enough to tell that story which i'm sure helped numerous people countless people connect with those events of their life uh that's it's a real uh gift that that you have those are the you know like you talked about being at that school when that kid said the thing about being a superhero that's one of the things i love about doing this show is when i i am there and somebody's defenses fall away and the thing comes out or the story or you know they they finally, the tears that they haven't been able to, to access come up. And, and I just feel like I've got a front row seat for um, something really special. Yeah. What else would you like uh, people to, uh, to know? I don't know. You have such a, a great voice. Uh, you, ever, <laughs> you ever see the movie Mumford, by the way? It was, uh, I have not. I think it was a late 80s movie about a guy who doesn't have a psychology degree, but he decides he's going to start practicing psychology in a small town. And nobody knows right away that he doesn't have a degree. But he's so comforting because of his voice mm-hmm. and his mannerisms. He becomes incredibly successful and uh, it blows up in his face. But the, <laughs> the point of it is um, it, it highlighted something that psychologists have a hard time admitting, which is when you do studies, uh, it doesn't matter what kind of degrees that you have. It comes down to your interpersonal skills and you know how you put other people at ease. And so there are psychologists in private practice today who are struggling to make a living, who would love to have your ability to get things out of people. Um, so it's kind of like someone who's, you know, empath- who's born with a lot of empathy. And we've all had teachers and counselors who've got that natural gift of it. Um, I think it's only now that society is really starting to realize the value of these people mm-hmm. and what they can do for connecting, you know, the world. And- do you think most people who are empathetic have, have, experience a little more pain maybe than than the average person or do you think that's a a stereotype Uh, you know i I think i think so i I think if if they've experienced more pain maybe not through something that's happened to them they just have a sensitivity to pain uh that that heightens their awareness yeah Uh, you know they say that that dads that have daughters are more empathetic um than dads who don't have daughters and poorer yeah (laughs) I can I can empathize with both being poor as a result of having a daughter and being more empathetic. What what else would you like the uh, the listener to know? <laughs> Jeez, I, uh, I I did write out my list of my my loves and my oh, fears. Oh, let's do so that. I um I don't know if we may have covered almost all of them, but um, give me some give me some fears. Let me look at the <clears> list here. Uh, some fears. Well, I I know that 
a big fear of mine is is since I travel so much, uh, just failing to protect my family. I, I worry, or honestly, when I'm home, I worry about this too. Like, if someone breaks in my house, wh- what am I really going to do? Like, I don't have a gun. <laughs> <laughs> my alarm is so obnoxious. It went off a while ago, and it, it does this thing where it yells, like, intruder, intruder. Like, so it's four <laughs> o'clock in the morning, the alarm has a malfunction. It starts doing this intruder thing. I get oh, up. Oh my God. And I race downstairs, almost broke my toe. And I immediately turned the alarm off. That was my response. Like, oh, something's wrong with the alarm. <laughs> what was I going to do? It was an intruder. He was going to kill me when I got downstairs. I'm like in my underwear, <laughs> turning the alarm off so he can then kill my whole family and steal everything. To silence. At <laughs> right? Least. To silence. So I can not disturb the yeah. neighbors. Yes. I don't want to wake you up while I'm being killed, of course. <laughs> but that, that's a deep-rooted fear of mine that I'm sudden, I'm going to fail to protect my family when I'm called upon to do it. <laughs> I think I think all uh I think all men have that and I would imagine most parents have that that fear of I can't ima- I don't have kids I can't imagine what a feeling of having a child out free in the world how terrifying that must be on any given day I can't imagine I can't imagine <laughs> I have dogs and I think oh my god if they ever got lost I would uh, I would know you know I would never sleep like when I see a sign that says lost dog, I just think, well, that's why they never leave our house. That's why they never leave our backyard. <laughs> you want to protect them. I, I just give you some insight into my Italian father who doesn't even wear his wedding ring. I'm almost 50 years married. And I was like, Dad, why don't you wear the ring? He goes, I don't want to be prejudged. <laughs> I was like, what? It's faithful? I don't know what he's talking about. Like, who, who judges you? But he's just so in his own world. Uh, and this, this relates to what we're talking about because years ago when I was graduating um, from Drexel where I got my doctorate um it was graduation weekend and we're out in west philly which is kind of a dangerous neighborhood and uh, all of a sudden we look up and we see a, a man with a gun and he's being chased by police down the streets of west philly right near my mother and father and my father had like a George Costanza moment where he's busting out of the burning building and knocking the kids away. He's like <laughs> running by my mother <laughs> to save himself. <laughs> And forget her. She could go next to the guy with the gun. And my brother and I could not believe that he was doing this. Like, where's your instinct as a, as a man to do anything? You just <laughs> just ran for your own safety. <laughs> I I don't want to know what I would do being put in that circumstance. So I'm not. I'm me not, neither. I'm I, not gonna. Those are my genes, Paul. I'm that's not gonna say me. anything. I'm not gonna say anything. I'm gonna be just as bad. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm sure. Give me another fear. Okay. Um, well, you know, and this is partly because <laughs> my my mom planted this in me, but career collapse, financial ruin. You know, for years when I got into doing full-time speaking, my mom would say to me, like usually in April, she would always go, so how's how's the year look? How's it going? And I would tell her, and she would say, well, you know, this is the test. This year's the test. After the fifth time saying that, I was like, look, the test is over. I passed the fucking test. <laughs> It's been five years since you've been doing the test, okay? I now understand why you're a psychologist <laughs> and a comedian. <laughs> Give me another one. Okay. Um, well, uh, we talked about surfing and trying to be a control freak and getting through that. But I, I think the last one here on the fears is is just being being forgotten or, or irrelevant in some way in doing this work. And I think that kind of led to some of my feelings of depression um, two years ago when marijuana was legalized and all I saw in the news were these people like 
proudly promoting it. So great. It's safe. And, you know, and here I've been spending my whole career trying to educate young people about, look, you know, it's not the worst drug, but it can hurt you. And here's why is it can affect your learning and memory. And like everything I'm seeing is like telling me, look, all this work you've been doing is really meaningless. Nobody really cares. Everyone just wants to get high. You know, like that was the negative part of my brain. And I felt like I'd been forgotten and in this work, I'm irrelevant. So that is a fear of mine. And just think to that superhero kid moment. You know, that that's why meaning and purpose, it, it it's so, I, I think back to sometimes to, you know, an, an email maybe I got from a listener or um, something that just made me feel like my life is not forgettable. But I, that's one of my deepest fears is that my life is, is I am forgettable and my life will be um, forgettable. Uh, I, I think most people probably have that, don't you? Yeah. No, it, it's it's true. They say in the Japanese culture, you have two deaths, right? The first death when you die, and then the second one where people forget you. Oh, wow. That's heavy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to bring wow. you down, but yeah. uh, that was... Uh... Everyone should have a legacy. Mine will be a shit stain. <laughs> the story <laughs> behind I'm them? Just, <laughs> I'm just going to leave a shit stain somewhere. <laughs> just a really foul shit-stained pair of underwear that nobody can access. And they won't know that it was me, but they'll know that somebody made an effort. <laughs> give, me, give me another fear. Another fear. Well, uh, I, that's, that, those are my main list. I have my All loves. Right. I can Let's go to the loves, loves now. Um, you know, being Italian, I, I, I love uh, uh, meals that inspire me. Uh, they inspire me to want to live, to want to cook. Um, you know, I, I go to Italy every so often to visit family there, and I, I can tear up, you know, at a good pizza. Because <laughs> there's something that just moves me about a passion for something so simple. And, um, you know, I was reading a book called The Dorito Effect, which is so interesting about flavor and how it's infiltrated our food because our food has lost so much flavor. We mass produce chicken and tomatoes mm -hmm. and it's lost all its flavor. So we're adding all these like chemicals to like pretend that we've got flavor. And then you go to Italy and they're so obsessed with natural ingredients and you eat something and you you taste it like what was meant to be, you know, tasted. And uh, it just moves me. And I remember being in Italy and there was a, a just a great story about going to a restaurant in Florence called La Loggia, which means the arches. Um, and in New Jersey, in Little Falls, there was a little Italian restaurant where I met the chef. And he goes, oh, if you ever go to Florence, you got to go to La Loja. I'll write my name down. Just tell him that you know Nino. That's it. That's all I had. A card with a Nino on it. I get to this restaurant. It is the nicest restaurant in all of Florence, overlooking the city, um, packed Saturday night. There's no way in hell we're getting into this place. My wife's there. And I pull out my card. And I say, oh, Nino sent me from New Jersey. And this guy, you'd have thought, you know, Nino mm -hmm. was his brother. He started to tear up and he goes, you know, Nino. <laughs> and he hugs me. How's Nino doing? He's great. He's doing wonderful. <laughs> he sent me here. And it was like a scene out of Goodfellas. They pull a table out of nowhere and put it right down in front and like move people out of the oh, way. My, my wife and I sit down at this meal and I could not believe we were VIPs for the rest of the night. And the food was incredible and the night was incredible oh my god i'm so jealous <laughs> i am so jealous. florence is my favorite city it is really? my favorite city it it i just 
we uh, we went there for seven days in 2007, and uh, I, I just fell in love, fell in love with that city. Yeah. So you take uh, a card with the word Nino. No on it. shit. <laughs> you go to La Loja. <laughs> no shit. Piazza Michelangelo. I don't think we ate when we were there, but uh, had a had a fantastic time. It's a great city. Yeah. Um, I love a kind of dictatorial, brilliant sushi chef. There are a couple of places in L.A. where you can go get sushi where, like, if you order a California roll, they'll be like, go go to another place. Go to another place. And you can just sit down, and it, it, there's this place that used to be called Sushi Nozawa. Now it has a different name. But he was like, he's like the soup Nazi, but for sushi. And he has a sign that says, special of the day, trust me. And the best way to go there is to just go sit at the counter and just say, just keep bringing me things that you think I will like. And I've never, and I've tried things that I would have never ordered. And they were all amazing because they were super fresh. And this guy knew exactly apparently how to prepare them. And I just love, I love that, uh, I just love that being being in the palm of a brilliant chef's hand mm. and and having him lead you through an experience where you're like uh, I don't know what the fuck he's going to give me because there can be some bad sushi th- things sure you know? and I love coming out the other side of that and and feeling like like it was an adventure for your mouth yeah oh it's beautiful yeah. give me another love. Well, I uh, I planted my first garden this year. We moved into Princeton, New Jersey, and um, we first of all we lucked out on this house. You know, it's it's hard to get a, a house in a nice town, um, and we couldn't afford uh, a nice house in in Princeton. Um, we found out though an owner was selling, um, like they were about to sell, about to put the house in the market the next day, and we come in. And we see this place, and we think there's no way in hell they're going to sell this to us. We can't afford this. And sure enough, they were excited to sell it directly to to us, you know, uh, without a broker being involved. And really, it was like uh, one of those. I was euphoric, you know, that that day when when she accepted uh, our, our our offer. Um, it was just pure luck, you know. And and what a great thing to have this house. Um, to have my kids grow up there and we have a garden in the back and it's been my labor of love to take this overgrown garden and and tear everything out and start putting in a real garden with tomatoes and arugula mm-hmm. and basil and sage and so going out to that garden uh, while I'm making dinner with my daughter and my son and, and cutting herbs and then walking back and, and cooking them um, is, is a love like it's it's like when I was single, I don't think I ever would have thought that there would come a day when this would happen, that I would even own a house, have a wife, have you know, like, and to have it all just come together. And you think, God, I'm so lucky, you know, th- this is all here. And it was so easy for it not to, because I was the kind of single guy who was like, I'm not getting married. I mean, I look at my parents bickering in their life. I don't, I don't want that, you know, like, it's, it's such a simple thing that I, I could have not had. That's a beautiful one. There, there's something really awesome about eating food that you grew. There's, we have a garden, and you know, we have uh, some trees in the back that you know we get lemons and oh, wow. oranges and avocados, and uh, and uh, our our garden is just kicking ass right now. And so every morning, my wife is making me greens that she just literally plucked from from the garden, and it's 
there's something just so incredibly satisfying about it. I think there's something good too that that um knowing that you are getting as much nutrient as is humanly possible from something because <laughs> it was just picked. I think there's always that worry you know in our buying stuff in a supermarket and just that feeling that uh you know you read that things lose their vitamins after a couple of days and um I just I just love when you know that you're putting something good into your body. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean we could spend a whole hour talking about how how food has changed and just being able to pick it as it was meant to be. The flavor is there. That's what really mm-hmm. captures my attention. It's like, wow, this arugula tastes incredible. Give me uh, another love. Yeah, so another love um you know, I I uh I went through feeling that that tremendous rush of I can do no wrong in front of an audience um, you're just getting laughs it just feels so right uh, I've talked about surfing I remember one day I was in South Beach this is a good one I was speaking at the University of Miami and I almost missed the gig because I get to South Beach is usually flat it's like a lake you can't really surf much there mm-hmm. and there was a surf shop I walk into and I said to the guy kind of defeated I'm like uh, you have any stand up paddle boards I know it's usually flat here and the guy goes no you're in luck there are waves today. I was like, come on, don't fuck with me. He goes, no, really? There are waves. Like there was a, there's a hurricane offshore and it's bringing waves here. Now, Miami South Beach is a clear water beach. You can see the bottom of the sand. And I'd never been to a beach where you're getting waves, but you can see the sand. Wow. And the waves were like two to three feet, but it was such a high for me. I did not want to leave the beach. I was there for hours, and my gig was coming. I had to get <laughs> off that beach and get to the university for this gig, and I was having so much fun. I was in the moment, just just loving every second of it because it was like everything came into line, you know. And um, I, I those moments to me, they make life worth living. It almost makes me sad to think that we get older. The idea that there's going to come a time where I'm not going to physically be able. To be in that moment, to have the energy to do that, you know. Um, and I look at old people sometimes, and I think, does it does it crush them? Yeah, I wonder about that. Is that, or, or are they in a phase where they're just like, I've done it, and I, you know, I don't need that anymore. Like I, I don't want to ask them because it's a sad <laughs> question to ask. But <laughs> how's life on that gurney? Is that working out for you? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was just thinking that exact thought today was, God. The, there's going to come a day when I can't hold a hockey stick anymore. What, what's that going to be like? What's that? Going to, apparently, Charles Schultz uh, played hockey until his late eighties. Wow, isn't that incredible? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've seen old guys surfing too. I mean, it, can, it certainly can happen if you keep yourself, yeah. you know, moving. Uh, you go up in Canada. I mean, these, they seem to just hockey is just a part of their life. I don't think not playing is ever even. <laughs> You have to be yeah. in a wheelchair. I mean, they, yeah. they, they, they're incredible. I mean, I guess Chicago, too. I mean, it's that whole region of the country. It's just, it's in your blood, man. I, I used to call it ice hockey when I would go to Canada. Like, what are you talking about? What's this ice hockey? Because <laughs> I grew up with field hockey and yeah. ice hockey, so you had to be an It's just called hockey. <laughs> <laughs> they were angry at me in Canada for saying ice hockey, like I had insulted them. <laughs> uh is that it for your loves? That's it, man. That, that's that's my list. Matt, thank you so much for uh, coming and uh, sharing your life with us and sharing uh, some really great ways for people to um, 
get naturally high and uh, and to improve their moods. And if if people want to um, know more about you or contact you, uh, you got a website. It's uh, mattbellis.com, and uh, it's just Bellis is B-E-L-L-A-C-E. It's a a tough one. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, dude. Thank you. Pleasure's all mine. Many, many thanks to to Matt. Um, And again, you can check out his website, mattbellis.com, and Bellis is B-E-L-L-A-C-E. Um, before I take it out with some surveys, I want to remind you guys there's a couple of different ways to support the podcast. If you feel so inclined, it would mean a lot to me. Um, you can make a one-time PayPal donation uh, or a recurring monthly donation for as little as five bucks a month. You do it through our website, mentalpod.com, and it's super easy to set up and then you don't have to worry about it. The recurring monthly. Um, you can also uh, use our Amazon search portal. If you're going to buy something at Amazon, enter through there, and then they'll give us a couple of nickels. Doesn't cost you anything. You can uh, buy a T-shirt or a coffee mug uh, through our website. Um, you can uh, go fuck yourself. You might have trouble supporting yourself. Uh, actually, that would be me supporting myself. I'm uh, rewind delete is it does it mean you're you're hard on yourself when you fuck up a joke you wish you'd never been born i might have overreacted um anyway shut up just read the surveys just somebody revving their motorcycle did you hear that just read the surveys monkey This is from the What Has Helped You survey, and this was filled out by a woman who calls herself Sochka. Her issues are depression, anxiety, PTSD, and childhood neglect. And what's helped her? Medication, meditation, spiritual connection, community, physical activity, and creativity. Oh, I totally agree with all of those. I use all of those, and they all help. What has uh, has somebody said or done that has helped you? The feeling like someone is actually hearing or understanding and getting me. They don't have to say anything at all. There is a nuanced understanding that is deeply healing when it happens. Man, do I agree with that. That is uh, that is a profound part of healing and being comforted is uh, somebody, instead of trying to fix you, just feeling you. This is from the same survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Handsome Lab Rat. Um, issues. Having a problem keeping hard-ons lately. I just tried jerking off 30 minutes ago and I couldn't even maintain a sad two-minute erection. Um, I think we should have a yearly parade for sad two-minute erections. They, they don't get the, they, they've never gotten their due. They've always been upstaged by sad one-minute erections and looked embested by kind of sad three-minute erections. Uh, again, wish I'd never been born. Uh, he, he writes, been too long since I last boned a willing participant who isn't a prostitute. My last relationship ended 2.5 years ago, and even then I really wasn't that into her and was lucky to last maybe 10 minutes in the sack with her. Not having sex may be the least of my problems right now as my career and financial well-being seem in jeopardy, but I'm fucked if I'm at the point of not being able to enjoy a three-minute jerk-off session anymore. Uh, what has helped you deal with them, uh, as stated, porn and prostitutes have helped me get by the last couple of years. Buddy, I, I am not judging. 
but there are better tools than than porn and and prostitutes but i i i get it you know what sometimes we just reach out to the closest thing to us um what has people said or done that it's helped helped you i don't talk to anyone about my troubles i gave up on that about a year ago after a session with a therapist that left me thinking what the fuck was the point of that and one of the reasons that i wanted to read this survey is because I want to encourage you to try another therapist. Um, there, I believe everybody has a group of therapists that they could click with if they're open to going to therapy and trying to get better. And there's a lot of bad therapists out there. That you know, that's the that's the sad truth. Um, and maybe there's a sex addiction going on. Maybe you should see somebody that that deals with sex addiction. I, I don't know. Just a thought. Um, and I also had to read this. Uh, he writes, uh, it, he identifies as straight, but he qualifies it. I have fantasized about giving hand jobs and blow jobs to fit guys with decent, thick dicks. I just love the fact that you use the word decent in describing a cock. Like, like you can't, you like your self-esteem is so low, you can't even give yourself better than a decent dick in your own fantasy. That alone, I think, qualifies you to go to therapy, that you're stingy towards yourself in your sexual fantasies. You deserve a marvelous cock in your fantasies. Enough scrimping. Uh, or maybe he meant decent like it was uh, a, a cock with uh, fine, uh, fine morals, like honest to the core. Same survey, filled out by a woman who calls herself Hope. Uh, Issues and struggles, depression, guilt about molesting my younger brother when he was a few months old, shame about being bullied severely as a child, shame about possible abuse slash molestation done to me by my older male cousin. What has helped you deal with them? Suppression, to be honest. What have people said or done that has helped you? People have tried, but at this point, I'm too far into it for people who aren't in it to help with their run-of-the-mill generic phrases such as, it gets better. Well, I agree. It gets better. Uh, I don't know if that has ever immediately helped anybody else. Yes, it's true. It can get better. It usually does get better if we're reaching out for help. But one of the things, one of the reasons I wanted to read your survey is it seems like the thing throughout all of this is is your shame is locking you down and isolating you from from getting help i think you're probably being um i i don't know the details of what happened with your younger brother but um i know a lot of these surveys i've read where it was something innocuous, maybe a sibling was curious about another sibling's genitals and they, you know, touched them or, you know, did something that that wasn't, um, that had an innocence to it. And then they think they're the worst person in the world and they want to die. And I just get the vibe from your, from your survey that you take on everything, that you put everything on yourself you blame yourself for everything and it just breaks my heart and, and you're young you're you know you're a teenager you're between 18 and 19 years old um, 
I guess that it would only leave 18 and a half. I make that joke every time I read this, um, that age range. But, um, and, and listen to this, uh, comments to make the podcast better. Uh, you do a great job, Paul. I just wish you wouldn't be so hard on yourself. Um, that's how I feel about you reading, reading this. And I'm going to recommend a book for you to read called Healing the Shame That Binds by John Bradshaw. Um, because shame makes our lives small. It, um, it, it is maybe the most toxic emotion. All right. Let me step off my soapbox. And next survey. This is the same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Boudica. Um, issues. Coping with my anxiety and controlling my actions during panic attacks. What's helped you? Friends! Exclamation point. Reaching out for support. Certain medications. What have people said or done that has helped? Just having a friend that can be honest and objective. You always want your friends to affirm how you feel, but it's more important to have friends that will call out your bullshit. I agree, but I think those friends have to know how to be tactful with it uh, and when when to say it, because it can definitely backfire if a person is not in a place to um, hear the truth at that particular time. Um, but, you know, I, I, I had to do that. I had to get real with a friend uh, three days ago at lunch. Uh, he was uh, He's in a tough place emotionally, and he's going through a breakup, but it's a really, really enmeshed, sick relationship. And, you know, after a half hour of details about, you know, all the crazy things that she does, you know, I just had to cut him off and say, dude, the details of this doesn't matter. What are you going to do about this? That's all that matters. You know, your part in this is that you've stuck around for a year and a half of this madness. Let's go from there. All right. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself Hungry Depression. He's actually a teenager. And uh, about his depression, he writes, um, knowing what I need to do, but unable to force myself to do it. Oh my God, do I relate to that. That 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 is i must think that thought a hundred times a day a hundred times a day until i work myself up into a nap and uh i always feel a little better after i get up after the nap even though i kind of feel like i wasted my time there's something nice about a uh an anxiety nap about his anxiety a moment not filled can become an hour of panic thank you for that this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself on no sleep. She is uh, bisexual, 18, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. She's never been sexually abused. Uh, she's never been physically abused, but she has been emotionally abused. She writes, it's not really anything interesting or out of the ordinary. My dad is an alcoholic and just kind of gives me shit all the time. He's done some really cruel, unbelievable things to me, my mom, and now my stepmom. He's never touched or beaten any of us, but he's threatening and unpredictable. He's hidden and destroyed possessions, locked us out of places, etc. I don't think he would ever hurt me, and sometimes he's really normal, so I don't know. Listen to the things that you just listed, and then you said, I don't think he would ever hurt me. You know, it doesn't matter whether the hurt is emotional or physical. Hurt is hurt, and this guy has fucking hurt you. So don't blow that off. Healing starts with giving weight to the things that 
have hurt us. Uh, any positive experience with the abusers? Yes to both. I mean, he's my dad. I feel really bad for him. Uh, and I feel guilty for sometimes never wanting to see him again. He was abused and abandoned as a kid, and the way he is isn't his fault. I think my stepmom will probably leave him, and then he'll have lost two wives, and if I write him off, he won't have anybody left. Nobody deserves that. I gotta disagree. Some people, some people, um, I don't know if they deserve it, but some people orchestrate their own loneliness. And some people need to have people leave them to give weight to the fact that their life isn't working and they need to find a different way to live. And um, like the other, like the other uh, survey I read, you are, you are taking on feelings that you shouldn't, feeling guilty for him, you know, you're... It's okay to have compassion for your dad, but not at the expense of compassion for yourself. And you are having compassion for him at the expense of compassion for yourself, in my opinion. Uh, darkest thoughts. I'm such a fucking histrionic. I'm obsessed with trying to ruin myself. I think about picking up, smoking, drinking myself to death, overdosing just to see what would happen. I've done some minor stuff, self-harm, abusing prescription meds, drinking, stuff like that, but I've never gone off the deep end like I want to. I fantasize about crashing my car, punching through windows, something where I snap and have to go to the hospital. I know I'm inventing these experiences for myself. There's nothing wrong with me, and I know that. Even now, I think I'm manipulating you to think I'm so fucked up or whatever, but I'm not. I'm just self-obsessed. I don't think you're self-obsessed. I think you're in pain. And... and what you've been through who wouldn't be in pain my god you deserve emotional safety and I hate this word but nurturing you deserve to be around people that will feed your soul not drain it and I think a support group would be a great place to go maybe one for codependency or um, dysfunctional families. Darkest secrets. I was head over heels in love with my female best friend for years. I wanted to be with her all the time to the point of codependency. She's bipolar and had a rough time with it for a while, so she needed me too. And for a while, we were incredibly, inexorably close. I think I fucked myself up to get her attention. I dramatized my own problems and became unstable and sad. I cut myself at least partly so that she would notice and worry about me. I resented her boyfriends and tried to fuck with her relationships so we could be together all the time. When I remember the stuff I did to her and for her, I don't recognize myself. I would never do anything like this now. I don't think she knows just how fucked up it was. She knew I lost it, but she didn't know why. We don't talk anymore, but I wish I could apologize and make her understand that I've changed, that I'm not still that person, and I literally don't know what was wrong with me. She did some weird shit to me too, but she didn't deserve how I responded to it. I want to apologize, but I think maybe we would be better off ignoring it. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I don't want to say because on the off chance you read this on the podcast, just hearing the words spoken out loud would make me want to throw up. That's actually my most powerful sexual fantasy is that when somebody hears their fantasy read back to them, they throw up. I'm triggered even by somebody with uh, headphones and a mop. 
I don't know if you guys got that, but uh, anyway. Um, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To my friend I mentioned earlier, you didn't deserve any of what I did to you. That wasn't me. I don't know what was wrong with me. I really, really did care about you. You were so important to me, and I'm sorry I couldn't value our friendship for what it was instead of trying to turn it into something it wasn't. All right, this is going to be made, me being dime store psychologist for a second, but I think you were trying to get from that relationship. I think you were you were replaying your relationship with your dad or your mom with that woman that you, that you were so um, obsessed with, and um, that's 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 my that's my two cents. Have you shared these feelings with others? People know about my dad, and they could probably guess that I liked my friend, but I haven't talked explicitly about it, though. I feel like people just don't understand that they have to take what I say with a grain of salt and that it's not as bad as it seems because, for some reason, I can't dial it back when I talk about it. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel like when anybody reads this, you'll think I'm fucked up, and I think maybe that's what I wanted when I wrote this. I feel like I'm lying to myself and manipulating you without even trying. I don't think you're manipulating any of us. I think you're hurting. I think you're hurting. Who wouldn't be hurting with the way that that, that you were raised? You know? You deserve love. This is uh, an awfulsome moment filled out by our friend uh, Billy Pilgrim. Uh, she filled out a, I think we read two of her surveys uh, already, uh, but she writes, uh, this is an awfulsome moment. Uh, three years ago, uh, my depression and panic disorder during my junior year had tanked my grades. I was deferred from my dream school. Then I heard a rumor at school that the second round of decisions was coming out that day, and I ran to the bathroom to check my phone during class. We weren't allowed to use phones in school. The anxiety of waiting for my phone to load turned my stomach. I ran into a stall. Just then, the page loaded on my phone. I found out I got into college while taking a massive shit. Anyone who walked into the girls' bathroom at that moment would have heard hysterical laughter from the second stall. Best shit of my life. Is there anything worse than a nerve shit? Maybe a hangover shit. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself stuck in the void. He is straight, although he says I'm not sure. He's in his 30s. He's raised in a totally chaotic environment. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. He doesn't say anything beyond that. He's been physically and emotionally abused. He writes, I grew up uh, with my father and brother. My dad beat me just about every day until the age of 13 or so. Uh, he would fly into violent rages and start yelling at me, calling me all kinds of obscenities, telling me how much I didn't appreciate all he did for me, fighting for custody of me and my brother to save us from our mother. He would punch, kick, and throw me around the room from as early as I can remember. I was about four or five. My earliest memory was when I was about four. Uh, my parents were still together, uh, and uh, it was me and my older half-brother. We were trying to find a way to escape the bedroom we were locked in. We tied some bed sheets to the bedpost to climb down to the floor below. My brother went first and ran to a neighbor's house. Just as I was about to climb out, my father burst in the room and caught me. I can so clearly remember his face and the anger in his eyes. 
My father had primary custody of us after my parents split, and we would see our mom on the weekends. When she would call us as we were talking, my dad would be yelling at me not to listen to that fucking bitch, and what the fuck is she telling you? Uh, He would tell me when I got off the phone that I was just like her because I took the call. Every day was hell for me. Um, yeah, and there's just more more of that. Um, and, oh. Um, my mother was not much better, but at least she was a pill-popping junkie, among other chemicals, so she never had much energy to beat me. Let's look at that phrase for a second. She didn't have the energy to beat me. Okay. And it goes, there, there's more darkness uh, beyond that involving the parents, um, but you get the gist. Uh, any positive experiences? Um, oh, yeah, any positive experiences? Uh, with my mom, not that I can remember. My dad, well, kind of. When I was about seven, I beat up a kid who had been bullying me for about a week. My dad told me in a kind and loving way that it was okay that as long as I didn't start it, I had every right to defend myself. It was nice and strange coming from a man who beat the crap out of me all the time. Naturally, I began to fight all the time and became a rageaholic like him. I guess that's kind of positive? Question mark. Darkest thoughts. I often think about suicide. I have for most of my life. I think of how I could do it. The quickest, quickest, easiest way. I made an effort once. I was in my room, drinking, high on weed and coke. I had a shotgun at the time and put the barrel to my mouth and my toe on the trigger, tears streaming down my face. I just froze. I don't know why I didn't do it and often regret the missed opportunity. But as much as I think about killing myself, plenty of tall buildings around me, I don't. It's so fucking confusing. Darkest Secrets I don't consider myself gay or bi, though maybe I am not being honest about my sexuality, but I've had sex with men, mostly anonymously. I've had about a four or five year habit of going to adult bookstores to have sexual encounters with men, mostly giving them head. I was turned on by the shame of me performing this dirty, submissive act on a man. Actually, just thinking about this, I remember I've always been turned on by shame. I used to like getting caught masturbating, and once when I was 13, there was an apartment building being built next to ours. I would see the guys working and would jerk off in the window where they could see me. One time, one of the guys saw me and seemed to like it. He was grabbing his crotch and motioned me to meet out uh, front in the street. I was so scared and turned on. I went out shaking so bad I could barely walk. When I met him, he was trying to tell me to go to the park where there was a bathroom. I wasn't sure at first because he was Hispanic and didn't speak English. I got scared and ran. Some of the kids in my apartment saw what had happened, but I didn't know it. The next day, one of the kids asked me to come to his house. When we were there, he showed me some porn mags and then took out his dick to show me it. I was turned on. I got on my knees and got close to him, but I noticed he had opened the door and was looking out towards another apartment. I realized something was amiss and left. The next day, some of the kids and an adult confronted me about it and were making fun of me. I denied it, of course, and went in my house and laid low for a few weeks. How fucking embarrassing. Uh, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. 
I guess giving a guy head anonymously is one. I also get really turned on by women masturbating. But what I really like is making uh, a woman come. I love to hear a woman moan, scream, or make noise directly in my ear as she orgasms. Fucking hot! Exclamation point. What would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to tell my family to go fuck themselves for blaming me for all the problems in their lives and abandoning me. Abandoning me. Fucking assholes. What, if anything, do you wish for? The ability to let myself be loved. I am so alone and afraid and have been for most of my life. I have only had one girlfriend that I was close to. I haven't been in a relationship or even had sex in over three years. I can't even try to get close to someone uh, because I know it. once I open up and let them in, they'll see how ugly and pathetic I am and run as fast as they can away from me. Have you shared these things with others? Some yes, some no. I've been to therapy and shared about my childhood and the abuses I endured, but never have I told anyone about my anonymous sex with men. That's that's uh, far too shameful. There's nothing shameful about that. That that was that was how you coped. That's how that was how you soothed yourself. And everybody has ways of soothing themselves that um, that they wish they didn't, uh, but you you weren't hurting anybody um maybe you were causing yourself uh, shame um but it sounds like you were the only one that was being hurt in that situation and um buddy i just want to give you a hug and um he writes, how do you feel after writing these things down? Well, I took the survey because i was sitting alone in my living room and crying, feeling so isolated from everything. Now I feel a little more stable. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I don't think anything I could say right now would be helpful, so no. Well, I think your honesty helps people. I think all this stuff that you shared helped helps remind us uh, that we're all in this together. And there, there is nothing that I read in here that isn't human, uh, isn't uh, that, that says, uh, I read your survey and I just think that this guy deserves love. This guy deserves love. And I think your challenge is going to be learning how to get vulnerable enough to let love in your life because there's love all around us. It may not seem like it, but when we start healing and we start letting our walls down around safe people, you find out how much love there really is in the world and you deserve it, man. I just, uh, I'm sending you some love. I'm sending you some love. Maybe join the forum and uh, start posting in there and uh, start connecting to some people. That's a nice way to, to um, start opening up if it's a little terrifying to open up in person to people but um, you have no reason to be ashamed this is from the what has helped you survey filled out by a woman who calls herself I'm not suicidal uh, her issues depression shame guilt ADD social anxiety and obsessive worries what's helped you CBT therapy helped a bit but I find distracting myself with projects uh, I'm passionate about uh, really helped to stop obsessive worries and a little bit with depression 
Interacting with the right people and trying to move forward in some way has helped with depression. Sometimes I just outright ignore my abusive thoughts, just shut them down. It's not a cure, but works for a while. What have people said or done that has helped you? A sweet gesture from my boyfriend that shows he cares about how I'm feeling. It made me feel loved and that he could see I was in pain and needed help. The gesture, chocolate ice cream, or chocolate and ice cream, made me cry, but a happy cry. Uh, same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Alushka. Her issues, bulimia, self-injury, drug abuse, trauma, chronic pain uh, from autoimmune disease. What's helped you? Feeling connected, especially to nature. I still struggle with all of these things to varying degrees. But when I started gardening and studying herbal medicine, I feel I made the decision to heal. I've had a major setback recently, but found my way back quicker than anyone had anticipated. And I know that is because I can go outside and sit in awe of a tree. What have people said or done that is that has helped you? When people tell me I have made their life better, I am better able to put my own stuff in perspective. It is easy to feel like a piece of shit when you feel like shit, but I'm not always a bore and I matter to some pretty awesome people, so maybe I won't off myself just yet. You know, we don't have any control over whether or not people tell us that we matter, but you know, I heard somebody say, be the change that you want in the world. You know, if you want certain qualities in a partner, bring those qualities to a relationship. And I would say, you know, if you're feeling lonely, be a friend to somebody, befriend somebody. You know, if you're feeling taken for granted, do something nice for somebody else. If you're feeling like your self-esteem is low, find something that you like about somebody and compliment them. This is same survey filled out by Jessica and her issues are depression and bulimia. Uh, what's helped you deal with him? I live next to an elementary school and sometimes I'll open my window and just sit and listen to the kids laughing and playing during recess. I remember joy exists in this world. Uh, what have people said or done that it's helped you? It's when people don't say anything that helps me the most. A hug and a simple, I'm sorry you feel sad today is all I need. Well said. Well said. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself, insert quippy nickname here. She's bisexual in her 20s, raised in a stable and safe environment. And um, this is kind of a, a heavy one uh, about uh, witnessing a suicide. So if those of you are, are triggered, um, you might want to you might want to forward ahead. I know uh, I'm not I'm not big on giving trigger warnings. Um, because then I'd be doing them all the time. Um, but here, here goes, and it's not necessarily that graphic. Um, but it just—it's uh, heavy. And uh, she writes, "When I was in college, I studied abroad in London for three months. It was wonderful overall. I saved up money for years to be able to take full ad- advantage of the city's." culture, art, and social life. During that time, I also had what's probably the darkest experience of my life to date. I haven't felt able to talk with anybody about it in the five years since it happened. Here goes. There's this great part of London called the South Bank. It's this great hub for music, art, museums, and theater. It's also pretty touristy, but that leads to some pretty great people watching. I spent so many hours sitting on benches along the bank, reading, writing, and witnessing people from different cultures interacting. 
with my earbuds in but not turned on so I don't come across as a creeper. One day I was walking along the bank, passing under one of the narrow footbridges that connect the two banks of the river, when I felt something weird. It was like that feeling of having a bicyclist passed within a foot or so, where you feel the air move before you see what's moving it, but it had uh, but it had come from the wrong direction. I felt that feeling as something just behind my field of vision fell from the bridge above. I heard and felt something hit the ground just behind me to my left. Then my response, then my memories became uh, jumbled. I remember seeing a man on the ground, but can't remember his face. He had landed legs first. He was still conscious. His body was moving unnaturally, like a child's toy that had been knocked over. An Indian man who must have been nearby when he fell was kneeling beside him, trying to convince him not to move, calling him friend, telling him help was on the way. A middle-aged white woman was kneeling at his other side, speaking with the emergency dispatchers on her cell. A crowd had gathered. I became part of it. It, As some of the initial shock subsided and I began to realize what was happening, my thoughts turned to how powerless I was to help. I'm usually a pragmatist. My brain sees multiple solutions and actions in most situations. Here, though, there was nothing. I had no phone, no medical knowledge, no knowledge of how the UK emergency response system works. I was frozen, helpless. My brain turned to the jumper's point of view. If I had tried to kill myself and was lying there hurt, I wouldn't want a crowd of onlookers. The crowd's presence was adding emotional pressure. I was adding pressure. I walked a little ways away. I stopped. I couldn't just leave him. I was the one who friends would call when they were back in their emotional darkness. I stood at the crowd's edge, the crowd's edge, and another reality. I might have just walked up. I think I saw him move through a gap between some onlookers. I don't know. I heard the ambulance's siren. The woman was yelling to back off, give him some space. I was part of the crowd. I would be I would be in the way. I turned and walked away. I walked until I couldn't see the crowd. I walked until I couldn't hear the siren. I sat on one of the benches next to the water, listening to the Beatles' revolver on my iPod. The world around me was normal. I felt like I couldn't stay still, but my body was frozen. Nearby, families were enjoying the day. A mime was performing for a smattering of onlookers. My inner self was racing full tilt into a blind panic. The water was calm. I felt out of sync with the world. The feeling of being drawn back to the jumper returned. I circled back again. The ambulance had come and gone. The crowd had dispersed. The only sign that anything had happened was the blood stain on the pavement. I needed to move. I walked back to the dorm slash apartment building where I was living in South Ken. My feet carried me to a room downstairs where the British house mother figure was having one of those ridiculous, cynical, cyclical who's on first kind of conversations about the British political system with a student advisor who was around my age. They welcomed me into their conversation. Part of me joined them and apparently pulled off a masterful poker face for the first and only time ever. The other part of me wanted to tell them what had happened, to say how worried I was about the man, to let out some of my inner panicked powerlessness and shame, to ask where he might have been taken, to try and find out if he was alive. I couldn't. I felt like it was his story, not mine. Part of me still feels that way. I I can't even put into words 
how how much your survey moved me what a beautiful painful picture you painted not only about what was going on around you but what was going on inside you and um You can't keep this. I'm glad that you wrote this, but you can't. You Please don't try to keep this inside to yourself. What you witnessed was every bit as bad as what a soldier would experience on the front lines in a war. Um, the feeling of helplessness, the horror of what happened. Um, I, I don't know you know after I saw that guy get shot which I shared a couple of episodes ago um, I saw a guy die suicide by cop uh, about two months ago and you described what I felt and I talked about it as much as I as much as I could because even though I didn't necessarily want to do that, I knew that I had to do that. Um I felt gross, you know, being an onlooker to it. Um I felt like I took some of his dignity away by standing, you know, within eye eyesight of him living out his last his last moments. Um, but I guess what I, what I want to say is you didn't do anything wrong. You didn't do anything wrong. And I'm sorry that you had to see that. And don't minimize it. I think that's what I want to say. And anybody who's listening, especially the people that wrote in about their suicidal thoughts and their brushes with that kind of stuff, um, isn't it evident from reading her how deeply she was affected by somebody that she didn't even personally know. That should tell you, those of you that are thinking of doing this, imagine how much people who do know you, imagine how much they care. The problem is, we don't tell each other that we care enough. And I'm just as guilty as other people. I try to remember I try to remember. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Raven Hair or Raven Black or whatever I called myself last time. Um, so uh, this is kind of a long one, so I'm going to truncate it a little bit. And um, basically, she she had a terrible. She has an eating disorder. She had a terrible week. A bunch of stuff going on. Um, and she went to yoga class. There was no room in the yoga class. Everybody was being 
one guy in particular was being a dick and wouldn't move uh, his mat. And um, so she's trying to keep her shit together, but she's just feeling like the world is, you know, against her. And so after this guy is kind of a dick to her, she says, that was it. That was the final straw. I couldn't really hold back my bad week, and I started to cry. I could hear the little voice in my head saying, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry, and worrying that my makeup would run and I'd look awful. If I looked awful, maybe I'd not be able to hide how bad I felt from myself. Straight away, we moved into a sun salutation, staying in a position called downward facing dog, which is basically hanging upside down from the waist. I thought I had managed to get the tears to suck back into my eyes somehow because there was no way my tearing up uh, could cause my makeup to run if I was negating the effect of gravity. Despite this, I battled through the tears throughout the class, never actually breaking down, just having to hold my breath every now and then. I think, I thought to myself, I've managed that. I think I've pulled it off. So after class, the tutor apologized to me for the guy at the start who acted like an asshole. Um, I decided to go to the waiting area afterwards because I was tired. Um, But there was no real privacy and I had to watch people, children pass, uh, staring at me for about a half hour while I tried to gather my strength. Uh, She then went to the gym and worked out. Uh, went to the locker room, changed, uh, took a shower. Uh, She goes, and I took a look in the mirror, and it was then that I saw it. I had assumed my tearful moments earlier had been managed well because I had been upside down. What I had not anticipated was that gravity does in fact pull things downwards, not inwards. I had mascara track lines running upwards. Yep, upwards, as in from my eyes towards my eyebrows, from my eyebrows along my forehead, upwards towards my scalp. Not only had I realized how much of a mess I was three and a half hours after the event actually occurred, but I had seen the yoga instructor, the rest of the yoga class, the children and the parents passing the waiting area, and the rest of the gym floor. I looked like a child had drawn felt tip on my face in a dare and I had been asleep at the time and not realized it. It was not just my mascara. It was the eyeliner, the brow pencil, the foundation had been disturbed. My efforts to convince myself that I looked fine, I was fine. I actually cracked up laughing at that point. I realized there was nothing I could do. I cleaned my face. The next day I saw my eating disorder counselor We spent the first five minutes of the session both in tears of laughter. That was fantastic. Thank you for that. Uh, I kind of wish you had a picture, though. That would be, I would definitely post that one on the website. This is, did I ever tell you guys this story? I, uh, when I used to play roller hockey, I would leave my apartment and, um, and one, I would skate to the to the uh, roller hockey place from from my apartment, and uh, and for some reason, I think I had a new stick or something that I needed to saw it uh, to the right length, and so I went out into the courtyard and I was kind of half dressed in my in my hockey stuff, uh, you know, I had the, like these stretch shorts you wear, and I had my my skates on, and um, <laughs> and I'm out there and I'm sawing my stick, and I look down. And I'm wearing basically my, my, you know, stretchy undershorts and my cup. Just standing in the courtyard wearing my cup. Not as bad as that lady, but 
I, I don't think anybody saw me. Um, again, I wish I was never born. I want to take that back. Uh, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself broken. She's in her 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Um, she was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, she writes, I was sexually abused when I was two, but I don't remember much. I was systematically sexually abused by peers in school for about two years when I was a teenager, and I was raped when I was 21 by a guy I met online. She's never been physically or emotionally abused. No positive experiences with the abusers. Darkest thoughts. Maybe I asked for it. Maybe I was born so sexual and messed up that I asked to be touched and handled when I was younger. Maybe when I was a teenager, I really could have stopped the abuse, but I didn't cause it. But but I didn't because I, I didn't because I liked it. Maybe I knew that guy would rape me, but I invited him over anyway. To which I want to say, bullshit, 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 and bullshit. That is your brain's way of trying to find some type of control to the fact to control the fact that that you were taken advantage of and you do not have blame in this situation and stop blaming yourself stop blaming yourself darkest secrets i buy things to masturbate with and then throw them away the next day because of the guilt and then go buy them again um that, that that's that, that's just not globally conscious I'm going to say that there you are you there's a landfill with a stack of dildos with your name on them and I want you I want you to feel I want you to feel tremendous shame about that of course I'm kidding um that's that's kind of uh heartbreaking and kind of adorable all at the same time um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you uh, masturbating with each other present and how does sharing that make you feel shame I want to recommend that book that I recommended to the other listener Healing the Shame That Binds by John Bradshaw um, it's one of the most common things after people have been sexually abused is for some reason we take on the shame and I don't know why it is that we do that but um, you can be free of it and you deserve to be free of it. What, if anything, do you wish for? Uh, freedom, normalcy. It is there for you. It is absolutely there for you. Uh, what, if anything, you would like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to know why, and I want to know if there's anything you're not telling me. Have you shared these things with others? I told my family about some of the abuse a year or so ago. I had to fight them to believe me and to convince them that I wasn't asking for it. I want to suggest also going to the Rape and Incest National Network because they will believe you. They will know that you are telling the truth and they will give you the love and the support that you fucking deserve. This is a happy moment uh, filled out by a woman who calls herself P. She writes, uh, I grew up in a very dysfunctional family, but there was a short time when things in the family functioned well. I was about four. Both of my parents were working. and ne Oh, this is a bittersweet one. And neither had yet turned into angry drunks. My family made a big deal of all of us sitting down together for dinner. But the routine following Sunday dinner was my favorite. 
I would rush from the table to my dad's recliner and wait for him to catch me. He would make a big production of me being in his chair and would tickle me out of his chair. We would continue with our tickle fight until it was time for the Muppet Show. I would sit on his lap, lean back onto his chest, and settle chest and settle in for our show. I loved listening to his breathing, heartbeat, and his full body shake with laughter. I adored our time together. The show would end and my dad would make a big show of telling me I had stinky hair and I couldn't continue to sit on his lap until I had my bath. My mom would give me my bath and I would rush back to my dad so he could read me my nighttime stories. I loved this time of my life and it is one of my favorite memories of my dad. With the return of The Muppet Show, it has just reminded me that although my dad caused me a lot of pain with his drinking and eventual suicide, There was a time when he made me feel safe and treasured, and there was no better place in the world than to be on his lap watching The Muppet Show and feeling his whole body shake with laughter. I'm hoping when I watch the new Muppet Show that I will feel just a little bit of the happiness, safety, and love that I felt when I was four. Wow, that is beautiful. That is just beautiful. Thank you for that. And I'm so sorry that alcoholism took your dad. It is a fucking hideous disease. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by... um, I like this one because it's a struggle in a sentence, but it's also kind kind of a happy moment. It's the snapshot of her life. Um... She calls herself always unfinished, and her issues are depression and anxiety. And a snapshot from her life, she went, I went to the ER, and all I got was this stupid sandwich. It was a pretty normal day for a 15-year-old. Get home from school, sit down at my desk, and try to shovel useless shit into my head for some test while fending off thoughts of hopelessness and despair. And like most days, for the millionth time, just when I was getting ready, really Just when I was getting into the thick of studying, I felt my breath become shallower. Oh shit, here we go again. Fresh tears stung my red raw eyes, and then following the anguished screaming, I thought I was dying. No, I knew I was dying. My parents kept asking me what they should do. Take me to the ER, I begged. Upon arrival, thrashing and screaming and sobbing, a befuddled nurse asked me if I had tried to kill myself. No, of course I hadn't. I was in the ER to prevent that. Well, now that was a problem. If I hadn't actually done anything, how could they fix me? They had to shut me up somehow, so they threw me in a hospital room, stripped me down, and stuck a needle in my arm, just in case. I told them I needed psychiatric help, but the nurse said there were no psychologists on call. If the ER can't fix you, who can? They put me on a bed and stuck a bored nurse outside my room to keep a watch on me. About an hour later, my mother brought me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in a clear plastic container from the cafeteria. An hour after that, it was clear they weren't going to help me, so I asked to leave. I had homework to finish, you see. Instead of taking the trouble to explain to me what panic disorder was, they just let me go. But let me tell you this. Because of that stupid sandwich, I am studying hard now to become a psychologist, so I can be there for some other 15-year-old kid having a panic attack in the ER. Fucking love it. Fucking love it. Sorry you had to go through that. 
but I love I love what you're doing. And finally, this is uh, another one from our friend Billy Pilgrim. Uh, this is a happy moment of hers. And uh, she writes, Last spring was generally horrific in regards to depression and PTSD. And I felt useless, pointless, and a drag on others. Don't worry, that's not the happy part. I was up late at a coffee shop catching up on grading when this hipster kid appeared at my table and said my name. I didn't quite recognize him, but he reminded me he was in one of my intro to lit classes a couple of years ago. And then he said, you don't know it, but you are a huge part of my life. You changed my life when you made us write that huge paper on a poem and present it to the class. And I presented on Rendezvous by Alan Seeger, and he is like my favorite poet now, and your class changed the way I see the world. And then he showed me the tattoo of Rendezvous on his arm, and he also said, I'll also always remember the way, I'll also always remember the day you stopped the class and told us that, quote, there's no such thing as vulgarity. He said, that was just like the coolest thing I've ever heard any professor say. Now, I'm sure I followed that up with with that there's no such thing as vulgarity, only context, but regardless, that kid whose name I had totally forgotten gave me a moment of happiness in the midst of some of the darkest days of my life, where it was a daily struggle not to kill or injure myself in some way. But that night, I didn't struggle. That night, I was able to hear and take in the fact that I was able to give this young man the gift of poetry and also affirm for him that having an open mind and question presumptions is always a good thing. These are things he will always have long after he has forgotten me. That, for me, is just about as happy as it gets. Thank you for that. And you know, as I kind of reflect back on all the stuff we've covered tonight, from Matt's interview talking about that kid at the, in the school auditorium to this survey to some of the other surveys, the thing that I see throughout that is that we need to remind people that they matter to us. And if we don't have people around us that we feel like we matter to, find people we do. Support groups is a great way to start. And a great way to start is to remind people that you care about. Remind them that they mean something to you. And um, let's try to do that tomorrow. You guys do it. I'm going to be playing Civilization Five. Actually, I'm going to be on a plane on my way to Brooklyn. And I hope to see you, some of you guys uh, out there. I'm, I'm really excited. And uh, I hope you got something out of this episode. And um, just remember, you're not alone. You never have been. You never have to be. It's just you're the mean part of your brain trying to keep you, trying to keep you stuck. And uh, you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way.